I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Tom, would you like to do the honors today? I would love to. Sarah, welcome aboard. Sarah, you're from Queensland, Australia. Is that correct? Uh, I'm actually down in Victoria in uh, in a little town called Castlemaine. Okay, so that would be south of Queensland? Yes, yes. Uh, it's it's a, a two states south, so Queensland's right in the north east of the country and Victoria's down in the southeast. So okay. There's quite a few hours drive between the two places. Yeah. That's yeah. We're in, I'm in uh, a place called Oregon in California. We're on the west coast of the U.S. And uh, definitely considered Will you agree that it's kind of um, Bigfoot country here? I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> I, hope, I hope we didn't lose Will. Oh, no, okay, I didn't. There you are. Okay. Um, so, Sarah, welcome aboard. Thank and you. And you're with the Australian Yowie Research. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's okay. Right. And we've had two people on uh we had annie and daryl who were uh i think they were on your show a while back and then we had uh, a guy named baz who was also on and here's the thing well you and i talked about this what part of what we're doing is we're finding repeating patterns between the bigfoot of north america and the yowie of Australia, and quite frankly, there's almost no difference. Well, patterns and behaviors very similar, right? Um, Sarah, what I'm going to start off. I've got a question for you. What can you tell us about the the indigenous lore, the legend of the Yowie? And I think there's another another at least one other name for the creature there. But how far back in history do the stories go? And is there any kind of um, indigenous, you know, petroglyphs or artwork, rock rock artwork, that sort of thing? Okay, so as so as we mentioned before, Australia is a very large country and there are different Aboriginal First Nations peoples, different uh, countries all over the country. So um there are there are many different many different names for 
the the hairy fella, the hairy man, as as they often call him in English, it's it's the hairy man. Uh, one of the most common names, one of the Aboriginal names that's used, well, Yowie is one of them, but uh, Doolagal is another name for these beings, and that's that's used in New South Wales. Uh, there's another word called quinkin, which is used further up, I believe, up in the Northern Territory in Northern Queensland. Um, there's also we, we seem to have two species of these beings here that, that are similar, but one is the big fella and one is the little fella. Um, so we have different different names for the little fellas as well. One of those is Junjadi. Um, another one is Wudachi. Uh, so, yeah, there's, there's, there's many different names. They're involved in, as far as I know, and I'm not Aboriginal, so I, try, I, I don't like to tell their stories too much, but as far as I understand, uh, there are stories relating to the hairy man going back uh, forever, going back, g- going back as long as, well, they still have them in their culture. They're still telling stories about them. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, they're an intrinsic part of many Aboriginal people's culture um and they're also they also quite happily believe not quite happily maybe that's a bit flippant um they believe that these beings are are flesh and blood but also have a supernatural paranormal element to them a spiritual element to them what are the differences between the big ones and the little ones and i think geographically um our previous guest said the big ones tend to be more on the East Coast and the West Coast tends to be more of the um, West Coast. Can you give us some details on that? Yeah, as, well, we get reports of both from from both East and West Coast. Um, we certainly, I guess of late, I've interviewed quite a few more witnesses who have had the little fella encounters over near Perth, uh, in, in which is the capital of Western Australia, the, the westernmost state. Um, so differences-wise between the big and the little, I've had some, <clears throat> excuse me, I've had some Aboriginal people tell me that they are separate entities. They're completely different beings, both very ancient entities. Uh, one is perhaps more, uh, more mischievous, than the other, which and, and I've heard people say that about the the little hairy fellas, uh, but then again, some people have had uh, frightening, aggressive encounters with the the little the little ones. Um, someone I interviewed from Western Australia not that long ago um, had a, a, a five foot tall creature, but who looked like an adult to him. So we're thinking it's a it's a Junjadi or a Wudachi and it's 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 roared and snarled at him and thrown uh, a rock that's just whizzed past his head. Um, so it was quite aggressive. Um, but I think if you were to ask if you were to ask First Nations people all around the country what the differences are, they all have a different story to tell you. So um, as far as uh, main differences it's is the size uh, they come in similar colors so we get reports of black of dark brown of reddish brown uh for both the big ones and the little ones um yeah that there's there's as far as differences go it's mainly size 
Sarah, that's interesting because everything that you described with the uh, the the different, uh, you know, you got different tribes or indigenous groups. They all have different names. Uh, same thing here West in uh, in North America. We get kind of the similar situation. All these different American Indian tribes have different names for uh, for the creatures, and predominantly. The stories here are about Sasquatch, the big ones, but there are periodically you hear uh, stories about the little ones. And no pun intended, but I've heard very little about the little ones here. <laughs> but um, what are some of the what are some of the names that you've heard them being referred to? The little ones, because I haven't heard much about the little ones in the United States either. I don't know. Uh, Will may have heard some names for the little ones. I haven't. The main one, well, the one I know is uh, from my contact with the Klamath Indians in Southern Oregon, and they call the little ones uh, the Guganas. And they say they're, they're very mischievous. Yeah, right. Interesting. Guganas. And Will, I think you've also said, or you just speculated, you know, just kind of thinking, is it possible that the little ones are actually younger juveniles, you know, very young, of, of regular Sasquatch? It's possible, sure. We don't know, but it is possible. Yeah. I think yeah. when when we try to um, decide if someone has seen a creature or found footprints, tracks, um, we generally try, we generally think that they, they're juvenile, um, if there's bigger tracks around them or they're, they're accompanied by one of the bigger creatures. Um, it, it's, it's more commonly thought, I guess, that a young one, a juvenile, isn't going to be running around by itself uh, and consequently that a bigger one will be very, near, very close by. Whereas if you find a lone track that's only... Uh, you know, a very small size, and you can't find any evidence that there were any other bigger creatures around. Then perhaps that was a Junjadi, a small, a little fella. Yeah, that's a good. Con that's interesting. That's a good conclusion, and that would make sense because if it is a young one, uh, an infant or or a juvenile, yeah, the parents are probably going. You know, so you're going to have some either older siblings or parents nearby. Um, going back just for a moment. Uh, I've, what I find interesting at the beginning of your show, it looks like there is some artwork or petroglyphs of these creatures. And is this something that has been discovered? Is it common uh, or does it even exist? Yes, it, it does. I, I, I can't profess to be an expert on the Aboriginal art around this, this subject. Um, but from what I understand, there are quite a few different petroglyphs of a creature that people are interpreting as uh, a yaoi or, or a big hairy fella. Um, it, they, it, it, they do exist. There's various of them around the country, but uh, I can't tell you much more about it because I haven't studied that too much. Right. Well, kind of where I was going with this is just simply the fact that the fact that the artwork exists in the first place and that it's attributed to these creatures is more supporting evidence that they exist. It's the same thing over here. There's 
plenty of petroglyphs and artwork that accompanies the the Indian lore here, as well as in the Pacific Northwest, uh, the the coastal tribes have totem poles with um, a certain one of the figures in the totem pole with pursed lips is said to be a Sasquatch because they're called night whistlers. So again, it just kind of points to uh, the existence of the creatures. And I remember seeing an interview with a anthropologist she was either with the uh, forest service or the bureau of land management one of those two agencies and her you know i mean she's an anthropologist i don't think she had any sightings or any evidence but she became a believer that they must exist because at the time of her interview she had over 500 names from different tribes all throughout the united states and these names go back to you know uh you know, centuries, if not millennia. And she said there just had to be something there in order for these names to exist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's exactly right with, with the First Nations peoples here. Uh, there's it, the, the stories of them uh, are so common. There's so many different names for them all over the country uh, that it's hard to imagine that the all the First Nations, all the First Nations people have invented this this myth with, with nothing n- no factual no basis to 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 base any of that those words on any of that language or any of that stories is is it just old wives tales to make children not stray from from camp at night mm, i you know i find this it's it's too common for it to be just that i believe talking with baz and annie we got the real strong impression that there's not a lot of general acceptance of the creature at all. And it's it's really almost a, a topic that you just don't really talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. Yes, totally. It's it's um, I, I, I get very strange looks when I explain to people what I do. <laughs> there, we don't have the big um, we don't have such a widespread appreciation of the subject for sure. And we don't have we certainly don't have the commercial commercialization of the subject of Bigfoot over here like like you guys do there. We don't have Bigfoot conferences. Uh, we don't have, um, unfortunately, maybe we can start one because <laughs> that would be really cool. But uh, part of the reason why I started my, my radio show, Yowie Central, was to destigmatize the subject. And the reason why Dean Harrison started Australian Yowie Research is, again, to su- help support people who have these terrifying encounters and no one believes them or they get ridiculed uh, or they have to sit on this terribly traumatic thing that happened and they can't tell anyone. It's, um, yeah, it's quite, a sh- it's quite a shame. So we're into talking about it and destigmatizing it over here. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, that must be a traumatizing thing when you're, mm. uh, you're isolated and you, yeah, you just kind of left to your own devices. You really can't share it with anybody or, and unburden because it really frankly it's a burden everybody i would say 98 percent of the people we talk to it's lifting a weight off their shoulders just to be able to share it with a group that they don't have any hurdles to get over to try to convince us that what they saw was real and and they're with a group that understands and and believes them do yeah. you with with all that said um 
and I think you kind of answered this question, but I'll ask it anyway. Do you feel like what your efforts are, the Australian Yowie research, are you guys kind of pioneering a sense of general acceptance of this topic, breaking ground, yes. so to speak? Yeah, absolutely. And like if it wouldn't, wasn't for Dean Harrison starting this organisation in the first place, like 20 five years ago or something. I mean, he started just collecting information because when he had a couple of terrifying encounters himself and he thought he was going to die, there was no one, this was in, in the early days of the internet too, there was just, there was very little information that he could access about what happened to him, you know, to talk, to, there wasn't anyone to talk to about it. Uh, so he basically is responsible for pioneering the whole subject here but I guess what we do now as a team with me on board and with uh, the other team members Gary and Buck um, we we are pioneers to it definitely uh, there's more and more people who are interested in the subject now and there's there's a few other uh, organizations that are doing research but um, Australian Yowie research was the first and I guess we're the one with the, with the main one with the largest, we have a database of over a thousand reports dating back a couple of hundred years till to the beginning of European settlement, and of course, then there are the the Aboriginal stories dating back way longer than that. Um, so, yeah, to to answer your question, yes, we we are we are pioneers to a certain extent. No, it sounds like you're definitely pioneers, and what Dean has done. And what you're doing it is very commendable because it's, uh, you know, it takes a, you know, you're kind of the brave souls going out there and getting this started. So, um, yeah, kudos to you guys. Um, I was looking at your show and one of your podcasts and there's, I'll try to pronounce this. There's a, it's called the Benarkin State Forest. Oh, yes. Yep, yep. Okay, what can you tell us about that? That seems to be kind of an area of high activity. Okay, just let me, I'm going to get it up on my map because it is, I don't live up there, so I'm, I have to um, just get it up in my mind. And it has a kind of a uh, comical, at least from my perspective, uh, name that that's associated with it. <laughs> Oh yes, yes. I think that's probably why Dean didn't 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 put the actual location of Blackbutt on the <laughs> right on, on the uh, report. You're talking about the report that just came out yesterday that we just did. Is that the one you're referring to? Uh, it probably is. I'd have to go back and check the date stamp on it. But yeah, it was uh, it was the Benarkin State Forest and uh, right. the Blackbutt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's actually <laughs> yes. named after a tree. Is that right? Yes, it is. Okay. It is. <laughs> it's not. Um, it's not a rude name at all. <laughs> uh, so look all the way, all the way along the Great D Dividing Range. So along the eastern coast of Australia, we have a mountain range that goes pretty much all the way from north to south, called the Great Dividing Range. Now, particularly up in the in Queensland, northern New South Wales, Queensland, up where the the rest of the team are. Um, that that region, and particularly in the Gold Coast and Sunshine Coast hinterland, is very active. We have lots and lots of reports of 
big fellas and little fellas, mostly big fellas. Um, that's sort of the the research area that Dean and the boys. Uh, well, that's it. But Benarkin is a little bit further north than where they're researching at the moment. But all of that area is lush, semi-tropical rainforest, um, heavily thick, dense forest. So we get a lot of we get a lot of reports from 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 that area, lots and lots. So it's a state park. I'm assuming there's there must be like hiking trails and can people go camping and that sort of thing. Oh and- yes, yes, yes. They can do all of that. Um, I I haven't been to Benarkin myself, um, but my mum lives up that way, um, and so I know sort of sort of the area around there. And it's it's just beautiful rainforest, but but because it's so it's so dense and so thick, um, I mean I was looking at the, the the dean and the boys went on a, an expedition last weekend, and the the hike to get in and out of the forest was it, it was so much hard work just go, just getting four meters down down a track down a waterfall. No, they're not even going on you know, on tracks actually. They're sort of cutting through forest. But even to get a few advance a few meters, uh, it's such hard work. They're all really fit, and uh, they take videos as they go and send them to me, so I don't feel left out. And uh, they they were they were exhausted and dripping with sweat, and it was it's really hard going. So uh, while it, because it is so, such hard going, you don't actually get many humans walking through the bush out there. Um, hence why. I guess why there's a there's a they, the boys do a lot of research up there, um, and why we get so many uh, sightings up that way, a lot of a lot of territory, a lot of nice places for uh, a shy yowie to hide from humans. Well, I got to tell you, I've watched these guys going out there and camping and camping in hammocks. I'm like, wow. Now these are guys after my own heart, but I am. Absolutely. If I'm in Bigfoot country, I'm not camping in a hammock. We've we've got jokes about that. <laughs> what are you camping in then? A reinforced tent? <laughs> yeah, titanium tents, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, it, it was very interesting. And, and later on, I want to talk to you about one of the videos they had was actually from a gal here in the States from Mississippi who got it, some interesting uh, footage of what's quite possibly one of these things. But um, so the Benarkin State Forest is is a hot spot, and that would only make sense. And and it's, it's a lush territory, great spot for the creatures, but in order to have a creature sighting, you got to have sighter and sightee, right? Correct. Yes. Okay. So you got to have people camping and hiking and that sort of thing. Um, or, or you get, which what often happens, and I think it happens in the United States as well, is the probably the majority of sightings we get are roadside sightings. So um, not necessarily people trekking far into the, the bush, but the beings are actually coming out and somehow getting caught on the side of the road, which is quite strange when you when you think about it why they would be so stupid as to stand there there you know hearing and seeing a, a car coming um particularly at night if they're if they've got headlights on I, it's it's quite inexplicable that we have so many along the roadsides 
You know, that is interesting that you brought that up because it's John Green, who's one of the early pioneers on this topic here in the U.S., or he actually was in Canada, said that about 70% of all sightings, and this was back in the 60s and 70s, were roadside sightings. And it's interesting because it's exactly what you said. Hello, I can see when a car is coming. Certainly the creatures can. So what? What? why are they doing that? We don't know. Um, but there was a, uh, I think she was a gal that was driving along. She said she was doing 70 kilometers, which I think translates about 60 miles an hour. And one crossed the road, a three-lane highway or a three-lane road in three strides. And it was every bit of everything that she described, you could have taken her account transported it to anywhere in the U.S. and it would have been exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I, I, there's another one that we put out a little while ago um, at a place, the, the sighting was at a place called Bongle Bongle National Park, which is further south in, in New South Wales and near Coffs Harbour. And they're pretty much identical story. She was driving a little bit faster. But this one actually tailed her, ran behind her car. She was travelling at about uh, 90 kilometres an hour at the time, very fast. This thing gallops after her on four legs and then once it reaches her car, she's still travelling fast, it stands up onto two legs, still running, and then jumps over her car and then disappears into the bush on the other side. (laughs) So, uh, Yeah, yeah. and that's... I got to tell you, there's just too many stories like that to it's it's not preposterous. It's uh, Will, what do we do? We have T.W. who's had them uh, a couple of deputies were you know, responding to a call, a couple of police officers and. The rear car was a canine unit. You know, oh, no, that, dogs that, that wasn't T.W. That was another uh, interview a number of years back. There were, uh, this was in Odessa, Texas. There were two uh, canine officers who were uh, deputy sheriffs that were heading for another town from Odessa because the county, they handle everything within the county. And they were both canine units. They had dogs in each of the two cruisers. Um and they were, said they were doing about what he felt about 80 miles an hour. But probably wasn't that fast, but, you know. Uh, then he saw, noticed something. This was nighttime. And he noticed something out of his peripheral vision. And he saw this creature come running up on all fours. And and it was on four, all fours. It was as high as the top of the cruiser. And it paced it for a moment and then veered off. And the dogs in both vehicles went absolutely crazy. And they're trained not to do that. So... Very interesting situation. And, Will, there's also, you have a personal account where you were trying to leave an area and the car just wouldn't go. Tell us a little bit about that. Tell tell Sarah about that story. That one's really interesting. Well, we were, an old friend of mine and I, in fact, it was the guy that was grabbed, you know, when we were at the Clark Ranch story. Uh, he and I were in an area um, it's called, it's called the Bald Hills. Uh, it's sort of, uh, near Fort Lewis, Washington. So it's out, out, it's out quite a ways. It's not that close to Fort Lewis, but it's in that general area. 
So we were out there one night just kind of looking around to see if we could hear or see anything. You know, it's, I, I was up there and we just decided to go out and take a look because it's an area that's had a lot of activity with these creatures. And uh, at one point, I, I, I think we heard, we heard some vocals and I decided to back up by these trees on this road. And I had a little, it was a little Ford Courier, a small car. And um, I, I can't remember what prompted us to leave, but we decided to take off. And I, it had a manual transmission, so I shifted it in gear and tried to go. And it wouldn't move. And I'm thinking at first, oh, heck, you know, the trans- something's wrong with the transmission of the car. It's not moving. So I, I shifted into a lower gear and, and really gave it gas. And I could hear the tires, you know, digging into the gravel. And so I knew that wasn't the problem. There was something holding the car. And then all of a sudden it was like, like a pulling a cork out of a bottle, the car being just let go. And uh, in, in the morning, I went out to check, and on the uh, side panels it, by the back seats, and it was a dark brown color, so that it was dusty because of those dirt gravel roads. And you could see these, what looked like big finger marks on either side of the car, where something big had held. Well, I'm sure it was one of the creatures had held the car. You're right. <laughs> A little, little unnerving, yeah. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we we have a mutual um, friend of ours who was in a forest here in Oregon. And uh, I'm not going to go too deep into this, but he was just out. Him and a buddy were just at the windows down and uh, just kind of, I think he was, he may have been working on a bourbon and a cigar. And the other guy had a cigarette and a, a beer. And one of these things suddenly ran by the truck screamed and roared my understanding was bourbon beer cigars it went flying all over the place (laughs) (laughs) so surprised right (laughs) right um so they do do stuff they really do um that is i don't want to say everything they do is out of the norm but i mean it's it's again this one that got on all fours paralleled the car jumped over the car it's um it's very much uh in keeping with some you know observed behavior of theirs yeah yeah and i can think of uh, you know quite a few other very similar situations in fact there there was another one which we we haven't published it yet but um if you if you liked the name black butt you'll <laughs> you'll like the name of this one uh it was called blue knob the little town <laughs> um and she there's a lady ride, uh, driving in her car and uh she by herself with a little dog and she had uh, a similar creature running on two legs beside her but for uh, several kilometres, just for about 10 minutes, it ran alongside her car and then just just ran off, uh, didn't jump over her car. But imagine 10 minutes and it's looking in the window at her. Right. Oh, my God, how terrifying. Did it have any facial expressions or, or was it? And she said, no, it was just looking at me like I was nothing, like I was a piece of dirt, but almost expressionless, but, it just kept looking at me through the window, through the side window as it was running along. Like, oh, God. And, she was, and this went out for how long? You said 10 so, minutes? So, yeah, about 10 minutes because it was quite some um, – it was a while ago that I did I did that interview. But if I remember correctly, uh, it was quite some time, and that's a long time um, it, under those circumstances. <laughs> that's a really long time. You know, and you don't know what the 
intent of the creature is, but really 10 minutes. I would say that's about nine minutes and 58 seconds too long, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. I, I would have been absolutely terrified. Was well, this at nighttime terrified. or in day? Yeah, nighttime. nighttime. Yeah, even worse. Yeah, and you're see, a woman on your own, um, not driving at night. There's no other traffic around. Uh, yeah, it would have been sincerely terrifying. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It would be terrifying, really, honestly, for anybody to have that thing. I mean, look at the one that Will just talked about with the uh, the two police cruisers and the dogs. I mean, it, it you know, it, it agitated and provoked the dogs into barking that they don't, you know, they're trained not to do. So it's, uh, there's something about the creatures quite scary. Yeah. And we, we had another one that was uh, remarkable in that uh, it was a, a couple who were driving. Um, the the man was the the man was driving. His wife's asleep. He notices this creature running alongside the car for quite some time as well. But this one had a, like a small, a short muzzle, so almost dogman like in description, uh, which is more unusual here than it is in the United States. We seem to be getting a few more of late. Yeah, we do have one here. They're 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 not common, uh, but it's uh, it's called a Type Three, and it it's kind of like a baboon snout on it. So we yes. beyond that, I don't know a whole lot about them, but um, yeah, very uh, <clears throat> yeah, very interesting. So you guys got them? We have them. Yep, I don't know what we don't know what they are yet. <laughs> we don't know what any of them are, really, do we? Um, but it's I, it's it's. I guess it's it's easier for me to get my head around a bipedal ape-like creature than it is a bipedal canine-like creature. Right. Well, and I if it's a, I just kind of struggle with it being a. Uh, a canine type creature. I I can see it being a bipedal. Um, you know, baboons have mm. uh, they have a nickname of being uh, you know dog faced uh, monkeys, and um, <clears throat> so I can I can from a physiological standpoint and the DNA and the uh, <clears throat> I just I just don't see how you could have a canine running on two legs like that could be wrong but i just don't see it yeah it's uh, hard to it's hard to work out um from a locomotion point of view how an anatomical point of view how that would work right but it does make sense and actually i saw an interview with a gentleman who was a uh, medical professional and he had a creature going by his house that was for all intents and purposes a sasquatch except it had a snout so it wasn't a dog man had nothing to do with that it was purely um just some sort of a you know the type three i'm assuming one of the things sorry go ahead no no you go on that's all right well i was looking on your on your website and on one of the videos and it was very interesting. There was, you had pictures of somebody that had handprints, both on the roof of their vehicle and on the windows. And what can you tell us about that? 
I'm just trying to remember which one it was. Um, I'd have to I'd have to look that one up, um, guys. I, I I haven't got that one ready to talk about. Oh no, that's fine. It it's um, it's something that we have, you know, we have incidences like. Well, actually, I had a, a situation like that here in Oregon about two years ago. I drove to drove 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 to an area, <laughs> uh, and I jokingly say I went to an area where they're not. And that's kind of a kind of a chuckle because they're quite often there, but there's absolutely zero. I've never had any indication whatsoever that the creatures are there. No footprints, no sounds, no sightings, nothing. But we hiked for well, quite a ways up to this uh, uh, lookout overlook, and when I came back, there was this huge hand on the side of my truck. I wasn't there before, and I said it to Will. He said he's seen similar um, impressions like that. So other than that, yeah, that was it. Um, okay, another incident that hopefully you might know a little bit about, it's called the Sandy Creek incident in 1980. The, the, the Sandy Creek incident in 1980? Yeah, it was it was apparently some uh, some hunters had encountered one of these things and shot one. No, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with that one. I do um, I do recall one where uh, one was shot. Uh, I interviewed someone uh, from New South Wales who reported uh, he just reported shooting one, but with a I think he had a very small caliber gun um just for use like for shooting rabbits and things like that um shot it in the left shoulder uh but didn't it didn't stop it running it ran off but it didn't it didn't leave any blood it didn't stop it didn't make any noise it just kept going and when when did this happen that was um that was a few years ago i interviewed him well, I think it was actually no, it was two about two years ago because I interviewed him last year, and he, I think it was a year before that. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's you know honestly that's consistent with what we hear in the U.S. where people have shot them. Actually, somebody that Will knows, uh, the guy was he had actually been a biker, a member of a biker gang, and later became a, a guitarist for. Um, uh, famous singer. I can't think of the singer right off the top of my head. Will, you know who it is. It was Johnny Mathis. Johnny Mathis, yes. And what, what him and his friends shot one with a 3030, right? Well, the story was they, when they were part of the Hells Angels, they decided to go to southern Oregon. There's an area called Port Orford, and a meteor had crashed there in the early 20th century. And there was some big reward, like $100,000, if you could bring the meteor in. So they thought they were going to go make some easy money and go find the Port Orford meteor. And so they rode their Harleys up there and had a fire going. And then they heard some noise up on this ridge above them that night. And it kept coming down, some kind of vocalizations. And by the time it got fairly close, you know, they were they were yelling and threatening to shoot whoever it was if they didn't come out and show themselves. And shortly after that, this creature stepped into the edge of the uh, the fire 
of a firelight at the edge of the camp there and just started thrashing a couple of saplings on either side of it and it scared the two guys so bad they each had a 30 30 and they shot it in the chest and he said it screeched and ran off and they got in their bikes and took off because he said we thought we were going to get eaten yeah right even after shooting yeah they said it didn't apparently didn't bother it it just screeched and ran off <laughs> right <laughs> i think i'd get on my motorcycle and leave too about that well, time. Yeah, I... <laughs> <laughs> right i don't think i would be from what i've from all the stories i've heard um reports from your country as well as mine shooting one doesn't seem to make any difference whatsoever and in fact it just enrages um the creatures so i don't think i'd be going it's, i don't think i'd be up for shooting one at all not that i really not that i really want want to do that anyway like i, it's probably I don't not come the, from that it's probably mindset. not the brightest thing to do <laughs> Yeah, no, no, I don't think it's the brightest thing to do. <laughs> what are some of the other encounters that you've that you've heard about? Some of the more interesting ones, for example, there was one where um, I just briefly saw just before we got on the air tonight about a group of boys a number of years ago who had encountered one of these things in the forest and I don't know the location. I don't know if you if that's too vague of a description. Um, um, well, the, I, I'm not sure about that one, but I can tell you about um, one of the, the most popular reports that we've that we've done. I, I interviewed that lady uh, about a year ago. Um, she had an absolutely terrifying encounter at Hickey's Falls, which is there. There is an area of about three thousand square kilometres in central New South Wales called um, the Pilliga, uh, P I L L I G A, and there's the Pilliga National Park. Now there's a there's a there's a highway that runs all the way through the straight through the middle of it and right at the, the southern end of that that area is a is a, a stop like a truck stop rest stop and just off from there is a a waterfall and so this woman and her seven-year-old child and boy and uh, her daughter her 13 year old daughter with one of her daughter's friends she stops there so the kids can have a swim it's a really hot day and the kids sort of get out of the car and race off to the the waterfall, and she she's sort of following on a little bit behind with her her younger boy. And the girls are all squealing and making a lot of noises they do. And all of a sudden, she hears this roar, like bellow, angry, uh, so loud. And and this waterfall was kind of an amphitheater shaped uh, rock. Uh, wall I guess and um, it there was this she said it was so terrifying this sound she couldn't work out what it was the children all like looked at her eyes wide going what is that what is it what is it and then she sees at the top of this waterfall on a track that's walking down towards her she sees these big trees just being pushed over snapped like matchsticks um one down and then another down and and she could hear this these massive cracks of trees and hearing something push its way through getting closer and closer so she's just like i don't know what that is she grabs hysterical grabs 
the boy chucks the chucks a little boy over her shoulder and runs and gets the girls to run too back to the car. Now the boy tells his mum that when she chucked him over her shoulder, he could see behind her and he saw this giant, uh, you know, massive creature at least ten foot tall come out of the forest and 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 roar, open his mouth. He had his mouth open, the little boy said, uh, cont- making this this awful roar. So um, she's, you know, she's hightailed it to the car. What she did find really strange was there was another car parked in that car park. All the doors were flung open. Nobody in the ca- nobody in the car. It was like that some that people had jumped out of the car and run off but left the car there and just as she's pulling out of this this rest stop onto the highway a, a police officer pulled her over because she was driving a bit erratically and um she just said don't go down there don't go down there there's just don't go down there you, that we, and she just and accelerated and left because she was just they were all screaming hysterically and she she sort of gathers herself a few kilometres down the road and pulls over and gets all the kids to put their seatbelts on and and they see this police car, the same guy who he whizzed up behind them, whizzed past them, and they could all see his face and they said he looked white and terrified. Um, and she inquired after this police officer sometime later and apparently he had arrived back at the police station, shaking white. Um, wouldn't talk to anyone and left the police force not long after. Uh, so <laughs> one of the scariest situations ever and it was just, yeah, her fear and the children's fear. No. So I've actually, there's a couple of people out there who've, I haven't had time to to to, to find out what happened to, to him, but, and it's, I think you'd probably have to be in law enforcement to get any information about you know, ex officers. Right. It'd be difficult. It'd be difficult to find information. So I haven't, I haven't, I'm, haven't tried to be honest. But I do know there are a couple of people out there who are, um, yeah, try, uh, who said they would research and see if they could find out what happened to the policeman. So yeah, very frightening. That story, that encounter where this thing is roaring and snapping the trees over, we've heard that. We actually had a gentleman on, um. Oh, gosh, a little over a year ago, who is a, a friend. Well, he, he was actually a police chief of another guest that we had on who's a, you know, one of his uh, policemen who's on the same police force. But this police chief was out hiking with his family. So there's about four or five people hiking through the woods in Washington state. And here's this huge snap and 50 yards in front of him a tree falls right across the path. Well, okay, that's, wow. Okay, I guess it can happen. Um, but, you know, it was interesting, but um, very odd. And he kept walking. And this situation repeated itself five times. Five times they're walking along and a tree would fall over, just get pushed over just beyond where they could see what, did the pushing and after the fifth tree they thought you know maybe maybe we'll do this some other time turn around <laughs> and 
Unlike Gutsy. Probably a good decision. <laughs> yeah, tree number one, and I'm gone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Five trees. <laughs> I think we're getting the message now. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, there was some definite communication going on, and yeah. they, they, it was received and understood. <laughs> exactly. Um, do you do you have over there? Um, what one of the other things that this lady reported from Hickey's Falls was a. a, a a terrible stench that filled the car um, and that was making them almost vomit like she was trying to drive but trying not to vomit at the same time because the, the smell was so disgusting um, that and it stayed in the car for quite some time. Do you have okay. that do you have that um, reported as well? Okay, I haven't had it where it was in a car. But I experienced that. Not in the car yeah, but Will did. Yeah, me and me and a friend were we got a report one time. This is oh, I don't know, twenty twenty five years ago. But uh, we went to an area in southern Washington State, Skamania County, and uh, didn't have the exact location. The witness wasn't there, but he told us where to go. And it was kind of rainy the day, and and usually odors are kind of held down when it rains. So uh, we walked into a wall of stink, and we we both almost threw up. It was so bad. And we had to walk out of it because it was so awful. And it was only a couple of moments we were out of it. And I said, I, I want to try something. That doesn't smell like anything I've ever smelled before. So let's walk back there. And reluctantly, we walked back to the same spot and it was gone. <laughs> the air was completely right. clear. So clearly it wasn't, it wasn't a dead a carcass no, or anything and, and lying we, around nearby. No, we did a search of the area and I did find some a mossy area that was flattened down recently. So something was right there, not more than 20 or 30 feet away from us, watching us. And we walked into that odor. And what did, what did it smell like? I, you know, I grew up on a farm where we did a lot of butchering and, you know, a lot of livestock and things. So you smell a lot of disgusting things on farms. And I, I tell you, I cannot pinpoint, I can't compare it to anything. There isn't anything that smelled like that. It was so bad. <laughs> but enough something that was so disgusting that you dry rich oh we did we did absolutely yeah yeah we I, get a uh, lot of we get a lot of reports of that um not not in every encounter not in every sighting but we do get lots of reports of a really foul stench yeah and i think it's kind of the exception uh last summer i was out with a couple of buddies and we were in an area that had um actually i'd had a kind of a growling encounter there exactly two weeks earlier. So they said, come on, let's go up there and let's check it out. So we spent the whole day up there. It's 102 degrees outside. I don't know what that comes to in Celsius off the top of my head. But anyway, it was it was a very hot day. And I kind of felt bad because we'd spent the entire day out there at the top of this mountain in the, in the Cascades. And as we're leaving, I smelled this horrible smell almost smelled like something dead but it wasn't that i'd never smelled the smell before and walked on i don't know 20 yards maybe and i mentioned it hey did you guys smell that and they said no what so we went back to the area and the first guy immediately says yeah i smell it then the second guy smelled it i smelled it as we're walking out now that smell is pacing us the entire way as we're leaving the area um 
one of the guys and you know if you look into like a densely wooded forest it'll be like a tunnel or a like a corridor that might go back several several yards this one went back about 70 yards and immediately one of the guys saw the creature and yelled he saw it and interesting he almost never uses the term bigfoot or um, sasquatch it's always something that rhymes with truckers (laughs) <laughs> right that's not very respectful <laughs> right <laughs> and and he saw it and then we went worked away we got back to the trucks and there's another corridor and just out of the corridor my eyes again where these corridors goes back about 70 yards i saw it just for a brief instant just and um but yeah we we smelled that smell and it was it wasn't like what that person that you described or what will you know where it's almost made you dry wretch uh we may have been far enough we we're probably 30 40 feet away i'm guessing probably about 30 feet away from this thing uh i think it was a juvenile because that was probably about six and a half feet tall um <clears throat> it was muscular but not that big bulky thing so i don't know anyway it was nasty but it didn't uh wasn't quite to the point of you know making us want to heave or anything do you think that that smell i was discussing this with um i spoke to someone who was a used to be a zookeeper and we were talking about he knew something about great apes and we were talking about how gorillas have this ability to was it gorillas or chimpanzees no it was the silverback gorillas have this ability to emit this this really bad smell as a deterrent when they're threatened or, or trying to scare you away. They have scent glands. He wasn't, yeah, so like a scent, like a skunk. It's when they become um, agitated, yeah. Yeah, so do you think that that's what's going on here? Or, or I do, yes. He, he was, he, yeah, he, he was thinking it's more just some are more, in, more into personal hygiene than others, well, and so some. Here's the way I look at it. I've, I mean, I've looked at, I mean, Good Lord, I've done this almost 50 years. All the reports I've and people I've talked to over all that time. Um, the smell, in, in the papers here, they like to report it as being a commonality among witness encounters, and it's not. Um, you might get a smell, you know, out of 20 reports once or twice. So I, I suspect that what's going on is that there's some kind of an agitation uh, my own encounter, you know, when I was 16, I was, you know, less than 20 feet away from one. And then a second one walked around and there was no odor whatsoever. Yeah, right. That's, that's very close. So I, I think it's when they're agitated that they have a scent gland, probably similar to gorillas. Right. Right. And I, I mean, I guess there would also be varying, uh, depending on, I guess, the terrain where that particular creature, their, their territory, um, some appear to be, in reports to us, some appear to be, uh, you know, have beautiful, clean fur or hair, um, and others seem to be really matted and, and gnarly looking. So um, do you get that variation in, 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 their, in their fur as well, in, in how the fur looks, whether it's kempt or unkempt? You know, I think it depends. It depends on a lot of factors. Um, when I saw those two creatures, 
the hair was not very well kept. It was it was matted. There was stuff in it from them moving through the brush. Um, but you look at the Patterson fo- uh, film, and, and it looks fairly well groomed. But that area is different than where I lived. So uh, the underbrush is not very thick. Uh, you know, they have an easier time moving through the terrain, through the timber, without having to go through stuff like that. So I, I think that plays a large role in it, and probably weather conditions and, and things like that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we had a report, um, and this was uh, – I, I spoke to the woman earlier this year, but uh, the, the report was from about four years ago, five years ago, and she was up on Mount Hotham, which is um, in the the uh, great – part of the Great Dividing Range, mountain range. It's in the, in the southern end, closer to me. And she, um, she and her husband saw a, uh, a, a creature that was – about six to seven foot tall, but and and didn't was buff, but not super chunky. Looked fairly lean. They they got the impression that it was perhaps juvenile, but it had long blonde, flowing, gleaming hair that that f- sort of flapped as he walked. Um, long blonde and gleaming, like it. She she said he looked stunning. Like <laughs> we nick don't we we've nicknamed him in our. Australian Yowie research team. We nicknamed him the Fabio <coughs> Yowie because he because he had this long, gorgeous blonde hair. Well, I'll give you an interesting parallel, Tom. You remember when we talked to Darcy recently in uh, North Carolina? I, I was thinking the exact same thing. Yes. She's seen three creatures there, but two different variations. Uh, two of the creatures are, are very much like what we have in the Pacific Northwest here. Those are the big blocky they look like a giant stump is what they look like because they're so thick from top to bottom uh then there's the other one she said it was she calls it the blonde because it has blondish colored hair and it's very muscular you you can see the the de- muscle definition where the other two you really don't right and we also had a report up in uh of all places in upstate new york uh i think uh, probably northwestern New York, where they had uh, it's been seen a few times. I don't know if it's the same one, or maybe you know, maybe it's a family of, but uh, the blonde-looking Bigfoot. Yeah, and this this um, the inter- there was one very interesting part of her sighting. Apart from the whole sighting was interesting, but this yeah, he was carrying a cowbell, an old cowbell in it, in one of its hands. Which we thought was such a fascinating detail. I've never heard that before. Um, must have found it somewhere in a field and picked it up. I mean, we don't even use cowbells much anymore, so it, it, it must have been an old one somewhere that it's found. But yeah, carrying a cowbell. You know that is it. That is um, an interesting detail, and the reason I say that is because there have been caches of objects, you know, human objects, things that people use that have gone back back in time up through, you know, the modern time where it's not often, but they find them in very, very obscure, very hard to find places, very remote locations. And so, and the cowboy, I wonder if it was kind of shiny or it just was, you know, maybe something about it intrigued it. Um, But it's not unheard of. Yeah, although we did, 
we did initially think, oh God, if, they, if it's got a cowbell, what happened to the poor cow? But on well, on that's further, what I was thinking. On, <laughs> on further thought, though, it, it's 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 not a, a farming practice that's used quite as much anymore. The the old cowbell, so I'm not sure it could have found it somewhere anywhere. Um, there's there's <laughs> lots of lots of farming country around there. Well, and I, I just couldn't help but wondering, maybe it associated that with cows and thought it could ring it and bring some dinner. Yes, I don't know. yes, as a lure. Yeah. Right. Um, what do you call uh, those? What do you call those duck with those things to to get ducks to come to you? Uh, right, uh, a duck call. Right. Yes, <laughs> like that. Uh, a cow call. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately for the Bigfoot, and fortunately for the cow, <clears throat> it will probably have zero impact. Have no success calling in cows with a <laughs> no. cow bell. That I know of. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm sure that, uh, I'm sure that even a cow would be too smart for that. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. There, and there are actually, there's some videos. There's a, I saw one of a, a lady in Sweden who still uses the old. It's kind of a yodeling that they use to call the oh, cows yes. in. Yep. Yep. And it works. You know, well, it works because the cows know that they get food. So course that works um so so you could potentially see a bigfoot imitating that call yeah you know and, and honestly i think they do imitate a lot of, i think they have a very incredible vocal range and it could be different with different ones but yeah you do hear them i have never heard them mimic anything but i've heard their screams and matter of fact, I recorded some screams uh, about two weeks ago. I was hooking up a uh, a recorder. A friend of mine and I were up there, and we didn't hear it while I'm attaching it to the tree with some wire and some tape and stuff. Uh, but when I went picked it up the next day, you can hear me fussing around. But off in the distance, you could hear these two very distinct screams. And they weren't mountain lions, you know, if anybody's wondering about that. that mountain lions sound exactly what, like what they are, a large cat. And this was nothing like that. Yeah, but, right. yeah they, um, and this is an area where we, you know, we found tons of footprints. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I guess they can, you know, they all sorts of sounds they can make. And so was that in, um, is that in Oregon, Tom? Yes. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was yeah. an area that, well, actually, it was about a mile from the area that I talked about earlier with the uh, with the foul odor. Mm-hmm. And that was a year ago. So, yeah, they seem to inhabit that area. It looks like, uh, I, I've never been there, but it looks like an absolutely beautiful place, Oregon. Yeah, it is. Yeah, absolutely. I I'm a little bit biased, but yeah, I think it's very pretty. <laughs> and, uh, and 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 as they say, very squatchy. <laughs> yeah, there's 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 a lot of them here, and um, but you know, I've, it's again, uh, I, I've been looking at the maps and Google Earth of Eastern Australia, and. Typically, I thought of Australia as kind of a dry rock, but actually you get on the eastern side and it's very lush, a lot of tropical, subtropical forests and just very beautiful country. Absolutely. Yeah. And the team, is it done? Now, does Dean Harris, does he still go out and do this or is it uh, just the other guys? 
Oh no, yeah, Dean's Dean's the one organising all the all the expeditions. Um, so he they were out. He was out with with the other two or the three of them last last weekend. Um, it's actually so all the way down that that up and down that mountain range. There's rainforest starting with you know tropical, then to semi-tropical, and then temperate down further towards where I I am. Um, it's temperate rainforest, but it's it's dense. So dense, and there's just vast, uninhabited tracts of forest, um, thousands, yep. tens of thousands of, of square kilometers. Yes, absolutely. I, I got to tell you, these are guys after my own heart. They they go out and do the stuff that I thoroughly enjoy. Um, and I saw a video. I think it's called Strickland. The uh-huh. Strickland Trail. Is it? Did I get that the, correct? The, the Strickland track or the Stickland, where, where they got the footage? Is that where they got the thermal camera footage? Is yeah, yeah. The guy about? had the flutter yes. and he'd never yes. used it before and beginner's <laughs> luck, <Buck>. man. Yeah. <laughs> I know, but he was so disappointed with himself that he didn't, because he was flicking through the different coloured filters thinking he was zooming it um, because he'd never used it before. So, right. <laughs> so unfortunately, he didn't, you know, he was he was kicking himself that he didn't get better footage. Um, no, that we but only he got, got good those footage. Shots. He sure did. Wasn't it amazing? Like I, when when they when they sent that to me, that 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 very moment, as soon as they saw what was on it, they sent it to me, and I almost fell out of my chair. It was, it was oh my god, look at that, look at that. You could the, clearly the, the see whole something. Profile. Yeah, it, it, was, it was something was behind the tree, and then you could see this large man-like figure bending down to pick something up and they said they didn't know what it's picking up and i'm like i know what it's picking up it's picking up a rock you guys better hide yeah (laughs) but interestingly though they haven't had in that particular spot they haven't had any rock throwing so they have in other areas but they 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 sort of felt because they hadn't had any aggressive behavior from and that's a particular spot they've been researching regularly they haven't had any hostile behaviour, so they were hoping that by just going there regularly, camping, not you know, not looking like they were actively hunting, um, mm-hmm. th- that they would draw them in, so they could. Uh, and and they haven't, as I said, they haven't they haven't found that they, there was any hostile behaviour there. But taking well, getting that footage, and he like he didn't. They were silent, entirely silent, which is. Incredible! They were able to come close and move away in silence. Okay, and that's what really got me because I watched that, and the fact that they're right—that's exactly what happened last year with the one with the odor. Um, it was—it had to have been watching us for a couple hours the whole time. It was watching us. We had zero indication that there was anything there until we left the area and it and then that odor came out i think it just got provoked by our presence we we i think we just got too close to it and and that was provocative and then it it you know like will says and it's it's a uh, defense mechanism it's an agitation and that's when it started so very interesting and that's, you know, actually, that's a point I want to make to our listeners out there, both your listeners and, and the ones here, is that you can be within 
a very close proximity. You can be within 20 or 30 feet of these things, and you will have zero indication of it, none whatsoever. You don't see them, but they do see you. Absolutely. And that's why Dean is so convinced that these um, these new thermal cameras that are really good quality uh, is a game changer because it's not infrared, uh, so they they're not they can't actually see any light being emitted from the camera. Um, uh, it's obviously completely silent as well. Um, it, it's probably one of the only ways that you can hope to get any footage of them. I believe is is through the the thermal camera because. Trying to get it during the daytimes, or you know, impossible as we as we see, there aren't too many clear uh, photos of these creatures out there, are there? Um, right. So you know, nighttime is a better a better chance. But before, I mean, that, that, that there's the theory that they can sense or see infrared light, so it's very difficult to get pictures of them on trail cams as well, on the, on the you know your standard infrared trail cam. But uh, with these thermal cameras. They don't know you've got. They don't know the cameras there either. Yeah, I, I would agree 100%. They they mm. can absolutely see infrared. You know, people don't realize that we can see uh, a very very small portion of infrared. You can just see a glow of infrared. But yeah, I think these creatures have more rods and cones. They just have a greater ability to see trail cams. And you know, people put the trail cams out thinking they're going to catch one of these things when the reality is if you look at any of the videos of trail cams you get deer that walk by they turn and look right at the trail cam the elk they turn they look right at the trail cam the coyotes the wolves the bears everything look at the trail cam hey tom why wouldn't these things Here's, well, here's a big reason why, and it's not so much, well, they can see the IR, but the bigger reason, when you when you compare the behavior to other primates in the wild, they are very wary, because they're high and highly intelligent, they're very, very wary of objects that don't belong in their environment, and they are intimately knowledgeable about their environment, and they know what does and does not belong there, and especially man-made objects, and other primates in Africa are the same way and they react the exact same way to man-made objects they're very wary of them and they'll make a wide uh, berth around them to avoid those objects if the creatures are coming into a man-made area like a farm or something that's a different story because man-made objects belong there but if it's in their environment they're going to avoid them well what do you think about when people are putting these out in the forest also there's the possibility that they're under observation. The creature is sitting there going, yeah, look at this. Yeah, look what he's up to. Oh, it's, I'm sure they see that occasionally. But again, that's that's a human activity. They don't like humans per se. So what we're doing and what we put out there, they're going to stay away from it. One of, the, one of the research strategies that Dean and the team use is, uh, is that just regular, just a regular family camping, cooking. Uh, they play. Uh, Dean often plays um, music, but cl- uh, classical music. We've been playing lately to see if that would be any uh, any will inspire any curiosity in them. Um, but it's it's that while 
most of the team is sitting there chatting, cooking, playing music. One one or two of the, the boys will be off in the dark with the thermal camera some distance away. Uh, so and and just sitting there by themselves silently. Um, so, so that's a sorry, go on. Well, he's playing classical music. Do you know if it's Beethoven, Mozart? <laughs> uh, we've we've actually been. I sent him a playlist um, of just different classical musical classical music hits. So it's it's a mixture of everything, really. Right. Um, I was I was I sent him a Carmina Burana, which is a big opera, like oh, yeah, loud yeah. <laughs> thing. But um, but he decided that he wanted to use just instrumental, but without yeah, the, drive without the away, human yeah. voices. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so no, it was a mix of different classical composers. Uh, but he thought, but he thought that might just be something different that that's unusual. You don't get too many people going out camping, blasting classical music, do you? No, no, not here in Oregon. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> unfortunately. No. <laughs> well, listen, um, Sarah, we we got to have you back on the show because I think you've got a lot more information, and this is again the whole purpose of this is not only to get some accounts that's going on in your neck of the woods over in Australia. But what Will and I find absolutely fascinating is the repeating patterns, the corroboration, the how, how similar these creatures really are. Um, what I'd like you to do is send us your link uh, so that we can put that in the description because we'd like to do a little cross-platform promotion. And, oh, yeah. uh, and, uh, and then just... Go ahead and stay on the line afterwards, and we'll just have a couple questions for you. Okay. Well, um, thank you so much for having me on your show. I'd be delighted to come back again, and you'll have to come on. You'll have to come on my show. Well, absolutely. You name the time, <laughs> and we're there. Okay. Done. Sounds great. <laughs> Welcome back from the break, everyone. Tom, Brian, how are you guys uh, ready for some questions here? Sure, sure. Yeah, we sure I guess are, I, absolutely. Yeah, I guess I can start. Um, Will, we were, we were talking right before this recording about how there are so many of these festivals now um, that I almost wonder, because there was one that I'll also talk about here in a second, one recently in Lakeland, Florida, which is not too far from me, but do you think in some way that these festivals i mean maybe the subject is getting too too good for for its own good because there are so many out there and and like you said with um with renee when they started doing these festivals it was more for sharing information these days it seems like there are a lot, just a lot of fans out there yeah i mean that's my recollection back you know when they first started and um um, you know, the whole point of these, oh, excuse me, I'm having a little bit of a scratchy throat this, today. So, uh, the beginning of it, to my understanding, this was from, you know, the original people who was, who attended those things said that it was to get the, uh, get a serious discussion going and with the science scientists involved, that was the whole, kind of the whole idea of the things. Um, and it didn't really catch on. So. But people kept doing them, and today it's more of a, 
you know, I don't know. I, I it's almost uh, I hate to say it, you know, and I don't want to offend people, but it's kind of like the you know Trekkie gatherings and stuff like that. It's not really, um, you know, it's not what they were originally. We'll just say it that way. I mean, I'm sure they have their uses and all, but um, it's it's definitely a different animal than it was originally. Yeah. There was one festival, like I said, here in Lakeland not too long ago, and I guess one of the topics of discussion is that they were talking about the the Florida skunk ape, you know, Um, and there was, I guess, a debate as to whether this Florida skunk ape is actually like a Bigfoot, like one of the four types, or something completely separate. Um, Any thoughts on that? Uh, To my knowledge, they're, they're one of the variations of the Sasquatch. Yeah, that's that's what I think too. But um, I guess pe- some people think that it's a completely different species. Well, I mean, there's there's lots of different opinions, of course, until it's proven. Um, I guess opinions are what count these days. But uh, you know, that's all it is is an opinion. What I was told, and you know, from my sources, they say that these are just another variation of the creatures we know. Yeah, interesting. Um, Okay, switching gears a little bit. How many castings do you have? Like footprint castings. Oh boy. <laughs> I haven't counted. Um, I think just sitting around the desk and everything, there's probably 20 or 25 of them just around here. You know, I have more boxed up and, you know, in, in storage, so I don't really know. Now, with those castings, do people send them to you or are they all done by yourself? Oh, some myself and some people send me. You know, we talked about this before. I mean, I, I'm all for, um, you know, if, if anybody wants to send me a copy of something, I may be willing to pay them for it, certainly, and, and shipping and everything. But um, And these are just my personal collection. That's all. I don't really do anything with them. Yeah. How many castings have you come across that you believe turned out to be fake? after examining them? Uh, you know, not too many, really. I mean, the ones that people go out and find and cast um, are pretty legitimate. So I, I think, you know, the hoaxed ones are, are people who are known hoaxers that go out and do those. And some of the things they've done are pretty obvious, but uh, for the most part, people are pretty honest out there. I got a, a good question here, and this is from Linda. And big shout out to Linda. Thank you so much, actually. It's Linda Taylor. I think it's okay to say your name because that's how she identifies herself in her comments. Linda has got a very logical question here. She says, why is it that people believe they've come come upon a birthing area? Wouldn't that mean that the females all get pregnant at the same time? It doesn't make sense. And just real quick, I would have to agree because they don't really... You know, like cats and stuff like that have a period when they, you know, when they go into, um, you know, they're ready to, 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 you know, they go into heat and that sort of thing. But these are primates. They're, they're hominids. Well, what are your thoughts? Yeah, just like humans, they don't have a season per se. It's sort of whenever. But yeah, first of all, I yeah. have to say, well, how do you know it's a birthing site for a Sasquatch? And, and secondly, yeah, I mean, you're, you're not, you wouldn't find something like that just routinely. And if you did, I would think that if you stumbled into, 
an area where it's like a nursery or birthing area or something like that, it, it would metamorphose into a feeding area very quickly. Right, and and without going into detail, and I don't want to give out details on this particular topic, but and sorry about that, folks. I know people. There's a few people get angry about that, but um, there's reasons they have for that. But there are specific locations where where they do birthing. It's not not just anywhere where it's you know anyone or anything can wander into a site. And for that reason, because of predatory behaviors. All right. Uh, Michael wants to know. He says it's not really a question, but he says he is listening to episode one fourteen. Um, and we're talking about how the animal crawls on its fingers and toes. Um, he, he just wanted to say that those of us who are old enough can remember watching Looney Tunes. And if you recall, <laughs> Sylvester the cat, right. which I do, you know, so there we go. Uh, giving away my age, uh, love that cartoon, uh, would walk on his toes and creep along. And, but this is something that we've talked about and when, who's in uh, Montana. Uh, I believe he's on the Flathead Reservation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's witnessed that. But we've heard that from time to time, how these things, it's almost like a spider walk or or, or like a uh, mechanics creeper. So it's odd. It's strange. I agree with you. Um, and I like the cartoon Sylvester the Cat. So there you go. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure if I can add anything to that. <laughs> Sylvester topped it. So, well, I, I have a question. Um, since we've been doing the show, how many people, and I guess it's probably hard to to get a to be accurate about this, but if you're in your speculation, how many people have we convinced on the legitimacy of this subject? Ooh. That Bigfoot well, that's exists. An, that's an interesting question. Uh, geez, I have no idea. I mean, I really don't. I don't even know how to gauge that. What are your thoughts on that, Tom? I think it's a good question, and I was just thinking the exact same thing. I don't know that we have any way to, you know, we don't get feedback on that, but, you know, we do get people who listen to the show who have, I think we've gotten comments over, you know, over the years that, People have listened, and they became either persuaded or they were sort of in the camp and became persuaded. Uh, and we just get a lot of comments from folks that, um, you know, sort of tooting our own horn that we're the best podcast out there for accurate information. And accurate information is probably the best way for people to become persuaded of any topic. You know, and it's got the ring of truth to it. I, I would... I would um, like to get the audience involved in that. You know, what do you folks think? Um, you know, either either comment, you know, on, on the YouTube section where their comments are or email us. Let us know what you think. I mean, uh, has anything that's come from our outlet convinced you, you know, say where you were not before? I think that might be an accurate way to do it. What do you think, guys? I like it. And... And not only whether or not the uh, whether or not you're a, a, a you know an agnostic, a disbeliever, or on the fence, and and listening to us, you know, we persuaded you. But also, will wouldn't you say that have we persuaded anybody in a certain direction? Maybe 
away from some of this other stuff that you know we've referred to as nonsense i think so um yeah yeah so we'd like to hear yeah absolutely folks we'd love to hear from you you know, Comments or questions at Creek Devil. I, I would still like to invite listeners um, to join in the Q and A. Uh, you know, if you, if you're interested in coming on, could be just a few minutes if you like. Totally anonymous. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm losing my voice. Um, you know, get a hold of us. You know, we'd love to have you come on and talk with us. We want to go back occasionally to doing um, a little bit of a live. Q&A like we used to do sort of with the Blab shows. Sorry about that. Yeah. I'm still losing my voice, guys. Um, but oh, yeah. We know. No, that would be awesome. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. This, no, I was going to say that that would be awesome because remember with Blab, um, pretty much anybody could come on. There was like four, like four windows. It was fun, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There were some real characters that would pop in once in a while, but you know what? It's a lot of fun to talk to people out there and, uh, and to have the chat window set up. So, you know, we can have chat going in there and, you know, answer people's questions and things. So I'd really like to start doing that. And I think people, you know, let us know what you guys out there think about that. Would you like us to do that? And how often would you like to see something like that? Very good. And actually we got a question here that, kind of ties into what we were just talking about a moment ago and this is a question for and actually it's one that I've kind of thought about when we brought it up on the last episode and the question is how can you tell that the hair on a Sasquatch is hair and not fur though the past week's show 127 <clears throat> was a conversation about the density of the Sasquatch hair and the ease that they can pass through brush. And he said, it got me thinking, how do we know it's not fur? So many other creatures are covered in fur, keeps them warm, and the brush and forested areas. You know, here's, so what's here's something that's an interesting point. I was just reading an article about, um, you know, humans and our hair loss. And basically, well, I guess I should answer that part first. Um, the writer of that article, and it was in, uh, it was an anthropological article, so it was written by a scientist and they were talking about how, you know, the terms and, and people, you know, <clears throat> have defined fur as having, you know, the guard hairs and all this kind of stuff. But the writer of this article, the scientist said there really isn't any differentiation between fur and hair. It's the same thing. Um, and point of interest that humans still have even though we appear to be hairless we're not we have as many hair follicles as chimps and gorillas do so basically we we are hair covered it's just much shorter and much thinner well i've actually worked with people that could definitely pass as a chimp oh sure (laughs) (laughs) we'll we'll leave it at that um yeah so that's a really good question and and i think kind of where he was going also was uh you know you said the one that you saw was you know it it had all this stuff forest you know leaves and twigs and stuff in its hair and then we had another guest on who said it was actually you know the blonde one looked like it was just well groomed and and really clean just a very yeah, I don't know if that's it's you know difference between variations and I I don't know I mean because yeah we do get sometimes um, 
we get some descriptions that way. We get some the other way. I mean, I've talked to other people that said the same thing about, um, <coughs> you know, about, um, you know, hair having a lot of stuff in it and being kind of messy looking, whereas other times you're fairly well groomed. So I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure what the answer to that is. Well, kind of a follow-up to that. Do you think that geography plays into that? In other words, are there certain areas where their hair might be thicker? It, it could be, sure. I, and here's the thought, too. Now, the area where I saw the creatures the first time, and, and I guess really the second one also in 88, um, <clears throat> that one... That one I couldn't tell. I mean, it was it was across the river, so it didn't. I didn't get a good close up look at the hair, but I suppose from that vantage point, it would have looked, other than the color and size, a lot like what you see in the Patterson film. It was very similar to that. Um, but the first two, the hair looked thicker. Um, but what I was getting around to was that the the brush in those areas, heavily timbered both areas, um, and and a lot of thick underbrush. So moving through that kind of countryside, you're bound to get a lot of stuff stuck in hair. And, and you know, even even a person walking through that stuff, you know, it's it's really easy to get little burrs and things in your jacket and or shirt and pants. I mean, you just get stuff on you from going through that kind of brush. Whereas, if, let's say, in uh, if you're in eastern Oregon or, or northern California, places like that, there's timber, but, but the underbrush is not thick. You, you can move through it fairly uh, easily without interacting with any kind of vegetation. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, and I mean, you'd have to kind of go case by case in, in a certain area to take a look and see what what it's like there. Um, you know, there might be a correlation to how thick the brush is in an area. We got a question from Danny. And his question is, it's a, it's an extremely dry year here in southern Sierra. Creeks and springs have dried up. The Bigfoot have left my usual spot at 6,000 feet. How should I go about finding them? Should I look for the nearest water, look for deer? He goes, I've seen tree breaks in Canada, but I haven't seen any here. Is it better to take the high ground with Bigfoot camping or let them have it and take a more vulnerable position? Oh, well, that's a good question. Um, I wouldn't take a vulnerable position because um, that's just, that could be inviting trouble. Um, food sources are what you're going to look for. Uh, they're going to follow the food. Is there kind of a rule of thumb that the creatures will follow, you know, in general, game will go to certain elevations in the summertime versus elevations in the wintertime? Yeah, it depends on the game. Okay, that makes sense. I was thinking in terms of like deer and elk. Uh, I think they, at least here in Oregon, oftentimes they go to the lower elevations in the winter. In the summertime, they go up to the feeding areas up high. Well, I know in, the, in hunting season, they come down near towns. <laughs> I mean, I, they get the paper they read it they, yes. they always they're not, they always know it's like opening day they're hanging right around towns where they can't be shot at so yeah they must they must subscribe they get the hunting synopsis they, yes they I've do. seen uh, <laughs> like literally I have seen a herd of deer in, in people's front yards oh yeah well we used to go camping up, up near a town named Ashford in Washington near Mount Rainier 
and and I swear every year opening day of hunting season if we're up that area you'll see the elk and deer in the pastures right at the edge of town you know where you can't shoot as soon as hunting season's over they're gone you know and so i i think of it in terms of they're not just animals of instinct they they can reason and do abstract reasoning as well right hey, so, hey so that, there's no hunters down here and they're not being shooting at us down here so this might be the place to be <laughs> right and there's food and there's, you know, food. there's grass oh yeah yeah. yeah, you know, Will. Uh, just to kind of switch topics a little bit, um, going back to what we were talking about before about our listeners and, and so forth, I can imagine that there are pro- probably people that were maybe skeptics, but they have become convinced. And I, I think one of the prime reasons for that is just the amount, the number, the sheer number of witnesses that come forward they 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 have nothing to gain (laughs) or but by um but i mean i I was just looking here new york city or or new york state i should say last year i'm looking at this article had 113 um reported sightings okay now i don't think 113 people would all make up stories you know i would hope not but yeah yeah. i mean in in i guess depends on who who the reporting agency is and and if that may be just one source there may be a lot more uh, reporting it and with this subject you have to and i've had many people contact me and say we had no idea who to contact because there was just a lot of craziness out there on the subject and we just didn't believe any of the stuff we saw and then they they may have heard us talk or whatever and, and that's kind of one of the things for us is we we try to keep things grounded and and take a real uh, kind of a nuts and bolts approach, you know, and, and people appreciate that. So, I mean, and it's the only way to look at it. I mean, when you start getting into some off, off the wall topics, you know, you, you definitely lose some, uh, some grounded people going that way. So. Yeah. And I can imagine too, that a lot of our listeners, maybe even if they, um, weren't interested in the subject like like me for example i just came across your show um a few years ago and suddenly i I became interested so i imagine there are a lot of our our listeners are are kind of the same way that they didn't have much knowledge about the subject but because the popularity of our show and maybe they have a friend who uh, suggested our show or whatever and now they are convinced a lot of it's word of mouth you know um I see comments fairly often, get emails from people who say, um, you know, we just stumbled on your show, absolutely love it. Um, it, We've had quite a few people contact us that way, and, uh, you know, we definitely appreciate the listeners. We appreciate everyone out there. Yeah, absolutely. And and that, that 113 number that I was quoting actually comes from Microsoft News. So, didn't you say before that uh, for every reported sighting, there are probably 10 more? Um, you know, I used to think, um, I used to think that um, about that, you know, wondering if, you know, how many sightings there were with people who wouldn't talk because I, going back to my myself, um, I wouldn't have told anybody. Uh, until I met, you know, the people I did, 
and then it felt like it was okay to talk about it then. But um, I've talked to so many people in the years since then who um, really didn't want to talk about it. There's still people I know who, who've told me their story, but they won't talk about it to anybody else. Uh, so I started thinking about it years ago, and and, and there had to be at least... 10 to 20 who knows maybe many more for every one person that would talk that many more that would never tell anyone their story oh fellas and folks out there we have a treat um instead of continuing on to the q a for the moment we have a witness who's going to come on here and uh tom's talked to him he's got a good story it's not real long but uh we thought we'd go ahead and uh bring him on this segment so stand by just a moment. Absolutely. Eric, how you doing today, buddy? I'm doing good, John. Good, good. All right. So you and I spoke earlier this afternoon, and you were doing some mining in Northern California. Is it? Is it, Am I right about that? Yes, uh, that's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. And you were, you got a little extra experience while you're up there can you tell us a little bit of well, first off tell us a little bit about you know the, the area that you're at the mining area what kind of work you did and then what led up to this encounter that you had well the my claim where i was digging at is what is a couple of miles away so it was just a convenient camping campground to stay at because it was the there at Snake Lake. It's free, or at least it was. I don't know if it is now, but and so it was just convenient. And I had already finished at my claim for the day and had come home, you know, cleaned out my sluice and brought it back and. I was actually gathering wood and it was about three thirty in the afternoon. So it was it was daylight. And I heard it was in the day after Father's Day in two thousand twelve. Uh, now the significance of it being the day day after Father's Day is Father's Day you're gonna have a lot of activity. You're gonna have a crowd up there, is that right? Camping and all yeah, that kind of yeah, stuff. That was full. Okay. And now that's Monday, is the campground still full or is it emptied no, out? I was the only one there that day. I, dr I drove through on my way back from my claim to just to see if anybody else was there. So. Okay, so you got an empty campground. And real quick, I just want to mention uh, Snake Lake. I looked at it on Google Earth, and you said it's full of some kind of a weed and I think lily pads. Uh, which for you know they're kind of tubers and we think there, yeah. there's some interest that the creatures have in lily pads so anyway go, uh, well, go ahead and continue and on catfish too say again it's full of frogs and catfish too okay well there you go uh, but yeah and hey well i've got i already had an armload of wood i mean I, I heard two tree knocks and it just and loud sharp and not very far away just from up by where the outhouse was for the for that portion of the campground where I was at and I dropped 
all but best club I had already in my arms and I knocked back three times and it immediately knocked back two times. Now, how did you knock? Did you take a piece of wood and hit it against another one or a tree? Yes, there was a a down log right in front of me where I was at, and it was still solid, and I whacked it pretty good three times. So it it gave a nice sharp knock back. So, but the immediate response kind of. I gathered up my chihuahua and had my truck keys in one hand and the dog in the other, and I stand next to the truck looking around. Uh, you tell, and then I saw it looking at me. Hey. Okay. Now, where what, you've got your dog? Let me ask you this: What the, was the dog reacting at all? You know, was he a tense he just, or barking or? No, he was quiet, and he's pretty. I mean, uh, I've kidded that he his nose doesn't work because he walked right past a hot dog okay <laughs> but yeah he really didn't have any response at all he just, I mean, he was still a puppy then too oh okay okay so you're walking back to the truck tell us where you saw it how you saw it and kind of the distance this was well I was already standing next to my, the, my pickup with the dog, and I and I had the keys in my hand too. I was ready to get in it, and if I had to, and I was scanning around, and it was pretty much straight north of me from where I was standing, and it was only 50, 60 feet away, and it, it was standing in bushes, and because of the way the road is there, the, the bushes that it was in were between me and the road so the with that uh opening right there it was bright it was backlit so i saw a silhouette and just its head and where it attaches to its chest and shoulders and it didn't have a neck Uh, but and uh but when i saw it i like startled and went bolt upright and it did the same thing and and i mean i only had eyes on it for maybe a second because it went from looking straight at me to it turned and i got a perfect profile and it took off and i didn't follow i let it go (laughs) so Well, let me ask you this. Okay, so this thing stands up, and and it's kind of in response to your movement, right? Yeah. Okay. And it turned around and walked off, or what? Um, well, did you did you notice any coloration on it? I know we talked about this, but yeah, um, really, was, all I could say is dark. I I couldn't give you an exact any kind of color. I mean, I don't think it was black. It wasn't that dark, but it was, it was too dark for me to give you an actual color. Okay. How would you describe what a, what the creature looked like versus a man who would have been standing there or sitting there? For one, from fifty feet away, I was it. It, it never. It was standing up the whole time. It was. It was just looking at me through a hole in the brush, and for 
I was still looking up at it from 50 feet away. So, so it's pretty tall. It was pretty tall. And like I said, it didn't have a neck. It just had the, the giant muscles. Yeah. You know, I mean, with the head sitting right in between them pretty much. Was it a big, is it, the physiology, was it kind of a bulky, muscular, or how would you describe that? What I could see of it, it looked like it was very muscular. So, and when it took off, I mean, it turned 90 degrees and it it was gone in about one step. And I couldn't see it anymore. So, and what is what are you thinking when you saw this? I was thinking, oh my God, the real. I didn't think, oh my God, I there was an exclusive, but you're right. <laughs> but sure. that was exactly what ran through my mind. They're they're real. And this is the first time you you believed in them that you went, okay, they're real. Well, I I Patron, shut up. I, I'm sorry about my dog. Uh, is that the same dog? Yeah, it is. He's, he's oh, okay. Uh, and I mean, I'm from Oregon, and I've known about tracks and all that. So I, I was open. To, I I thought there might, you know, you can't disprove it without, you know. So you can only prove something. So, but. I never thought I would see it. I was just, and so I didn't exactly believe. I believed in the possibility of, I guess you could say. Okay, sure, sure. So this was the day after Father's Day, and you're you're in the campground. You're by yourself. This thing, obviously, now you now you've had your aha moment. What do you do from here? Do you still go back and work your mining claim? Do you work your mining claim with one eye on the claim and one eye looking around? Uh, uh, tell us well, a little bit about that. The the claim being a couple of miles away, I, I never was edgy there, but the very first thing I did after it took off was I went and grabbed my rifle and made sure it was loaded. And that thing didn't leave my hands for the next three days. So, I bet, right. Yeah, so is and my parents were involved in this too, and I guess I was more afraid of telling my stepfather that I got scared off than I was of staying. So, oh, I see. So they didn't. Okay, so they're they're not. Uh, this wasn't something you wanted to share with them. Well, I told them afterwards, and my mom just kind of gave a oh okay and my stepfather just thinks i'm crazy (laughs) okay and is that still the position he has today sort of warmed up yeah Uh, and what i find funny about that is uh he's a marine and he was in vietnam and he's told me about him having run-ins with the rock apes in vietnam So, well, that's interesting because that's basically the Vietnamese version of Bigfoot. Yeah, but I'm crazy. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. But I, I just 
find that one little thing amusing. Yeah. If you had to guess, let me ask you this. Uh, two things. If you had to guess on the height, uh, just a kind of a, your best guess, and also what would be your best guess on the weight? Well, I, I really didn't see enough of the body to give you a good guess on the weight, but it was probably to look through the that hole in the brush, it had to have been about eight feet tall. Okay. So that's got to be pretty unnerving. Yeah. Well, the, the, that wasn't as bad as what happened for that night and then the next night. Because the, the, that night and the next night, it was absolutely silent. And, and I'm next to a lake full of frogs and all that and nothing. Right. Oh really? Okay, so no no sounds of any wildlife. That's one thing, but not to have the frogs. I mean that's uh I wonder if they kept you know, was going around and you know, scurrying around and maybe trying to catch them or Yeah, it I mean it, it was quiet it was like a tomb. Yeah. Well I've it's... experienced that. Uh it is it is a little bit odd. Um and the lake, it it had lily pads and this kind of a noxious weed that you're talking about that you can get tangled up in and it you know it can trap you. Yeah. But you said it did or did not have lily pads. Well, this the stuff all grows on top and it looks like lily pads, but it's all supposed to be that weed. What the I, I could talk to a forest service guy while I was up there, so okay, all right. Well, I was just curious. All right, so it's those that green stuff that's on the surface. I think we've all seen that if we've seen a pond. Um, so you go back and you're doing your mining, right? Yeah. And I think you said you do sluice mining. It's not hard rock. Yeah, it, it was placer. Okay. And no other, no other indication, no other sounds, um, and you're just going on about your business. And were you a little bit uh, on edge, or are you just pretty much okay because of the distance? Well, at, at the claim, I wasn't on edge at all. But it just back there at the campsite, like I said, it's a couple of miles away, and I know that wouldn't be very much distance for that. For one of them to cover, but right, but yeah, yeah I ne- you know, I never mm-hmm. felt on edge at the claim at all. But the the night that I saw it and the next night was just so that was beyond on edge. So I I was in my sleeping bag with my rifle in hand. Yeah, I didn't sleep. <laughs> I understand that. And so you're sleeping in a tent, not a camper. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, that doesn't. Yeah, that doesn't offer a lot of protection. Uh, it, even though it was silent, I never heard anything around my camp. Uh, you know, I never. Nothing ever got moved or touched. But, but it just that silence was just so heavy. So before the silence, before you had this encounter, 
what would you normally hear at night? Oh, the frogs, you know, crickets, uh, owls. Yeah. And, okay. and, and I've heard, I've read stuff about hearing the, an 800 pound owl and you know, th- th- it was normal sounding owls. Yeah, sure. So. Yeah. Okay. So that would be a contrast between the normal wildlife sounds, crickets and the frogs and owls, and then nothing. And you got to yeah. wonder why. Well, I mean, I've been out going out in the woods. You, I, you know, when it's silent that there's something around, and but that was just like extra oppressive. Hmm. So, Eric, uh, let me ask real quick: um, How many times have you been back to that area since you said it was 2012, right? When this happened? Yeah. Yeah, so, and I went back the next for uh, the next year, uh, several visits. I went back again that year. Okay, and um, do you still go back to that? Or do you still work that mine at all? Uh, no, I I live in Oregon now. I haven't had the mine for uh, several years. But. Okay, so I got to ask. It has nothing to do with Bigfoot, but did you get any gold out of there? A little bit. It didn't pay the bills, though. <laughs> right, right. Oh, yeah. Well, um, now have you seen or heard anything since in that area? Well, I haven't been back there since about 2014. So, and I never did. That was the only thing that ever happened there. So. Okay. Eric, do you know if there had been previous sightings that you heard in that area? Actually, uh, the Quincy area. Uh, I checked into it after uh, my encounter, and they get, you know, five, six, seven reports every year. So, even the people that own the donut shop in Quincy had an had a sighting. Now, is this your only uh, Bigfoot encounter? I mean, have uh, you ever seen one since? I haven't seen one since. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, we had uh, uh, something happen with rock, pebbles being thrown. We were because uh, I have friends that have a claim here in uh, up out of Cottage Grove, up the Bohemia country there. And we were up there, and the last day we were there, we had to pebbles being thrown into the creek but we never saw who what was throwing them or where they were coming from so you just hear it uh, did you see any or hear about any footprints in that spot uh actually a, a guy had come by from the uh there's a bohemian mining Asso- mine owners association and they have claims up there for their members and 
the guy that was up there checking on him had said that they had had something happen at one of their uh, campouts. So, but he didn't wasn't specific about when or where that was, but. Uh, but that one, I mean, like I said, it was just pebbles. So I never saw anything, never heard anything other than just a pebble hitting the water. So you mentioned that you didn't tell your stepfather or, or maybe he was skeptical, but do you know anybody else, like any friends that have had sightings as well as you? So, well... I have one friend that uh, he says he's had one, but uh, I'm not sure how credible his is. And, but other than that, I nobody else that I know. So. What state was the one, uh, the friend of yours, that, that he saw? Well, he, he said that was here in Oregon. Over in the coast range would have been his. Okay. Well, I got to say, we know there's no such thing as Bigfoot in Oregon, right? Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Eric, I got to thank you, buddy. I really do. This is uh, it's an interesting topic, and you had a very interesting encounter. So um, before we wrap this up, do you have any questions for Will or Brian or myself? Uh, I I don't think so. I, okay. Uh, well, you're, you're very welcome, Will. So this is the first time I've talked to anybody that wasn't family or a close friend. Yeah, thanks, Eric, for coming on. Welcome. This story is being brought to you by William Jevning and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. I'm going to say the title of this one is Speedway Monster, written by Ken Holsey and Terry Presley. Huge, scary, aggressive, fast, and threatening. These terms are used to describe several Bigfoot-like creatures said to inhabit the desert regions of Southern California. These mysterious giant apes go by many different names. The Borrego Sandman, the Speedway Monster, Zubies, Devils, and the Yucca Man. It may come to the surprise of those who follow stories about Bigfoot and other mysterious creatures that the first report of these creatures by European settlers did not come from the East Coast, Midwest, or even the Pacific Northwest. It actually came from Southern California. In 1769, Spanish priests founded the first mission in San Diego. Local Gabrieleno Indians told the Padres about hairy devils that lived nearby. In fact, according to written accounts, the Indians lived in fear of these large, foul-smelling wild men and refused to go anywhere near the reported home called Tawaspuki, Camp of the Devil on the southern bank of the Santa Ana River. The area of Dead Man's Hole, near Holcomb Village, 
Just west of the Anza Borrego Desert State Park was a water stop on the old stagecoach lines during the mid to late 1800s and is the reported site of several alleged murders blamed on Bigfoot. In 1876, one of the passengers who ventured out of the safety of the coach while its horses stopped to take a drink reported seeing a large, naked, hairy thing watching him from behind some scruff. After that, several people met their demise at the site, either strangled or beaten to death by an unknown person or thing. They blamed the monster, of course. In April of 1876, the San Diego Union reported an encounter with a missing link near Warner's Ranch, also west of Anza Borrego, by a young man named Turner Helm. According to Helm, the creature had dark fur like a bear and a face like an American or a Spaniard. In March 1888, two local hunters, Charles Cox and Edward Dean, set out to hunt down the monster and finally put an end to the murders. According to the San Diego Daily Transcript, the pair found and killed what they were looking for, a creature described as a gorilla with the face of an Indian and fangs like a bear. The creature's body was to be transported to San Diego, where it was to be on public display, but mysteriously it disappeared before arrival. Undoubtedly, it was the discovery of gold deposits that first lured the white man to this desolate area, and it's from one of these fortune hunters that the first report of Bigfoot, or the Borrego Sandman, as it has been called in these parts, originated. Reportedly, in 1939, a prospector, who, when interviewed in the 1970s, wished to remain anonymous, was attacked by a large group of upright-walking apes as he camped near the Borrego Sink. The frightened man described the creatures as very large, covered in white fur, with glowing red eyes. The only thing said to have saved the man was the fact that the monsters were afraid of his campfire. Another report of giant footprints from the same general area came from a man named Victor Stoyanow in 1964. His story retold in a famous article in the Saga magazine entitled America's Terrifying Woodland Monster Men in 1969. In the piece, also, it featured the story of Harold Lancaster, a miner who encountered the Sandman in 1968. Here is an excerpt. Gold prospectors and treasure hunters frequently seek their lost bonanzas in isolated areas. Since 1964, treasure hunters in the Borrego Valley Desert in California have whispered about the abominable sandman of Borrego. The arid area is near the Mexican border. It is virtually uninhabited. There are many fissures, caves, and crevasses in the Superstition Mountain region, and prospectors say the Cocopa Indians have told of a subterranean labyrinth underneath the mountain. Major Victor Stoyanow was seeking an access into the Superstition Hills in January 1964 when he noticed large humanoid tracks in the sand dunes. The prints ran in pairs, generally parallel, and averaged about 14 inches in length and nine wide at the instep, Major Stoyanow declared. He returned to the desert on several other occasions, made plaster casts of the prints, and snapped photographs. Curious as I am, I hope that the person who discovers what kind of beast it is doesn't happen to be me, 
Major Stoyanow said after his thorough investigation into the tracks. The San Diego Union ran an unverifiable article some years ago of a sandman that was shot by Hunter Frank Cox at Dead Man's Hole near Warner, California, in San Diego County. The beast, described as a cross between a man and a bear, had a head that was rather small, with protruding teeth and powerful jaws. The muscular creature had feet that measured twenty-four inches in length, and the body weight estimated to be four hundred pounds. Harold Lancaster, treasure hunter, was prospecting in the Borrego Sink, east of the settlement of Borrego Springs, California, in July 1968, when he saw a sandman. I was camped up on a mesa one morning when I saw a man walking in the desert, he reported. The figure came closer, and I thought it was another prospector. Then I picked up my binoculars and saw the strangest sight in my life. It was a real giant ape-man, Lancaster said. I had heard about the screaming giant ape-man up in Tuyalami County, the frightened people, for a couple of years. Another person and I even went up there to look for the thing. I decided it was a hoax and never expected to actually see one. As the Sandman drew closer, Lancaster became worried. That thing was big. I was no match for it, he reported. I had a twenty-two pistol on my hip, but it would have been like shooting at a gorilla with a pea shooter. I was afraid the beast might get too close, so I fired a couple of rounds into the air. The Sandman jumped a good three feet off the ground when the sounds of the shots reached him. He turned his head, looked toward me, and then took off running in the other direction. Why didn't Lancaster shoot the alleged Sandman? Well, I was afraid, he admitted. They should be protected. They are a form of a human, a primitive species. It would be a murder to kill one. They should be studied. In the late 1960s, reports of Bigfoot sightings in the desert towns of Lancaster and Palmdale reached a feverish pace that lasted well into the 1970s and then tapered off. Though these areas border on the Mojave Desert, they also border on the Angeles National Forest. It does not seem too unlikely that the creature could have been lured out of the wilderness and into the desert. More bizarre are the stories of frequent intrusions by creatures that match the description of Bigfoot that have surfaced from nearby Edwards Air Force Base, an area further inland and much further from the forested area near Los Angeles. As the story goes, base security has possession of several surveillance videotapes that plainly show extremely large, upright apes trespassing in the facility's numerous underground tunnels. How or where the Bigfoot break into or gain access to these tunnels has never been revealed, obviously for security reasons, but reportedly these incidents happen rather often and are a nuisance. In 1964, a father and son found themselves being pelted with rocks by a shaggy creature while hiking near Escondido. Later that same summer, a juvenile sandman was implicated in the death of three cows on the MGM ranch near Jamul, west of Anza Borrego. This time, the creature left behind plenty of large human-like tracks in the soft dirt. The city of Fontana has had a long and glorious history associated with auto-raising. As most of you probably know, the city is the present home of the Auto Club Speedway, 
which holds a yearly major NASCAR race along with other racing events of different types. What many of you might not know is, back in the 1950s, there was a drag strip in the area that was considered one of the best in the country. The Mickey Thompson's Fontana International Dragway lasted for almost two decades before a series of fatal accidents forced it to close in 1972. The area is now a housing tract known as the Village of Heritage and lies about a mile east of Etowanda Boulevard on the north side of Foothill Boulevard. These race events took place for two decades and attracted legions of diehard race fans. They also attracted a very curious monster. The height of these signs took place in the early 1960s when race patrons would regularly spot a giant, hairy, Bigfoot-like creature crossing a field adjacent to the track in full view of the grandstands. Bigfoot had been seen so regularly that it earned the name Speedway Monster. Though witnessed by hundreds of people, no one ever worked up the courage to investigate it. It is hard to speculate why a creature known for being reclusive and shy of humans would trek so close to the racetrack, filled with people and not to mention the loud noises produced by the cars. One can only assume that it was curious about what all the fuss was about, or more likely that the creature was making plans on rummaging through the track's trash cans for leftover burgers and hot dogs after everyone cleared out. In July of 1965, the monster attacked a young boy as he walked home. According to the account, the creature surprised the lad by jumping out from behind some bushes. As he tried to escape from the monster, his clothes were torn to shreds. The child managed to get loose and run away. The monster reportedly did not give chase. On August 27th of the same year, a young woman named Jerry Mendenhall was attacked while in her parked car on a residential street in Fontana by a mud-covered monster that smelled like a dead animal. The creature reportedly grabbed her through the open driver's side window, Frightened, the young woman put the car in gear and stepped on the gas to escape, leaving the monster in the dust. Though the Speedway closed its doors in the early 70s, reports of the Speedway monster continued in the city of Fontana and the nearby San Bernardino Mountains. In 1975, a group of Boy Scouts were woken up by a Bigfoot rummaging through their campsite near Barton Flats. Likewise, in 1976, a young man came face-to-face -face with a creature outside his cabin near Big Bear. The area of Lytle Creek in Cajon Pass near Fontana has been a hot spot for Bigfoot sightings for decades. In 1985, a set of large human-like tracks were found in the mountains near Anza. I have hunted that area and hiked around there over the years. Many times I have been out there and knew that had some feeling or other of some presence. I don't mean like small animals or anything of that sort, just unexplained feeling that someone or something was watching me or following me. In 1991, Fontana President John Davis reported that a hairy creature on two legs raided his chicken pen. The most interesting post-Fontana Speedway story came in 1992 when several motorists on Foothill Boulevard spotted a family of Bigfoot walking along the railroad tracks that crossed over the busy street. The location was reportedly close to the local Ace Hardware store. Oh, and here is a little history. 
Back in the 1800s, an area between what is now the towns Laverne and Pomona, near Fontana, was known to local Indians as Toibipet, devil woman, who was there, the reported hunting ground of a female Bigfoot. The first sightings of the Yucca Man began in the early 1970s as more and more people began to populate the remote desert regions of Los Angeles. As families migrated out of the congested city to the cheaper outlying areas in the desert, stories of a large hairy monster began to circulate amongst the relocated suburbanites. At first, no one really paid much attention to these reported encounters that many believed were just the product of bored imaginations. All of that, however, was about to change. On a cold February night in 1971, a lone guard manned a post outside an armory on the outskirts of the Marine base near 29 Palms. Without warning, the otherwise unearthly quiet was suddenly shattered when a large mass appeared out of the dark desert landscape. The guard raised his rifle and commanded the being to halt. Much to the young man's surprise, the large figure did not stop, but instead charged right at him at an inhuman rate. As the figure grew closer, the Marine realized what was approaching, rapidly, was not a man at all, but a huge, upright, running, hair-covered creature. Paralyzed by shock, the young guard stood his ground, too frightened to move. The mysterious creature threw the man to the ground, rendering him unconscious. When the guard's relief arrived several hours later, they found him almost incoherent with his rifle nearly bent in two. After the incident, both the CIA and FBI were contacted to conduct an investigation. Much to their surprise, the locals were more than eager to tell their stories about giant man-beasts in the area. In fact, the very same night as the attack on the guard, two creatures had been seen roaming through the neighborhood, relatively close to the base. When a local couple looked out of their front window to see what was upsetting their dog, they saw the two yucca men crossing the front lawn. Then some time later, the same creatures were seen near a horse corral some distance away. The investigation also revealed that several employees of the Jordan Joshua National Monument had seen Bigfoot-like creatures on numerous occasions. Eight years later, in May of 1979, a young couple were leaving their condominium complex in Desert Hot Springs, north of Palm Springs, when a large, hairy creature emerged from behind a yucca and in front of their car. According to the driver, the animal, which had a chest the size of a refrigerator and arms that hung down below its knees, was so large that he could only see it from the midsection down. The beast that reportedly was covered in long, tan-colored hair disappeared quickly back into the night, leaving no footprint evidence. Again, in 1979, a twelve-foot-tall Bigfoot made a visit to Hemet, California, some distance to the south of Palm Springs, twice in a period of a week. This time, however, the creature left seventeen tracks in the mud along a rural road during its initial visit. The tracks measured eighteen inches in length and spaced six feet apart. Noted Bigfoot researchers Douglas Trapp and Danny Perez both conducted an investigation of this sighting even going as far as to perform a stakeout of the location where the tracks were found. Alas, the monster did not return. In 1988, a couple of servicemen from 29 Palms were returning home from a day of fun in the sun at Big Bear Lake at about 9 o'clock p.m. 
when they encountered a creature that the locals call the cement monster. Due to the fact that it is said to live near an old cement factory in Lucerne Valley, as the two men approached the old factory, a large, upright, running creature moved across the road in front of their car. As was the case nine years earlier in Desert Hot Springs, the animal in question was so large that the men could only see its lower half. The two men looked at each other in disbelief for a moment before one of the men cried out, It's the cement monster! After him! The driver hit the brakes while the other reached for a gun that was in the glove box. The two adrenaline-filled men searched up and down the road and around them exclaimed, "'What the hell was that?' The other replied, "'That was the cement factory monster.' But they never found any sign of the creature. The pair concluded that they had seen some form of prehistoric man and returned to their journey home. This ends the reading of the story, Speedway Monster. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This is a five-story collection being brought to you by William Jevning and being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one. The Creature from the Avalanche. What did Tony Woolridge see and photograph standing in the melting snow on a Himalayan mountainside? Was it, at last, a yeti? Woolridge himself thinks so. He told his story to David Helton, who reports herein, and showed his pictures to two experts, who deliver their contrasting judgments. BBC Wildlife Magazine, September 1986. When in early March of this year, Tony Woolridge first saw fresh animal tracks on the slopes of the snow on either side of him, the thought of a yeti did briefly cross his mind, but only as a funny idea. He was, of course, in the same general part of the western Himalayas where, in 1937, H.W. Tillman followed a set of large, ape-like footprints for more than a mile, and where, in 1976, Peter Boardman and Joe Tasker emerged from their tent on a morning after a night disturbed by unidentifiable low growls to discover that whatever the thing was that had kept them awake, it had apparently, and this may have been what the growling was about, scoffed 36 Mars bars, complete with wrappers, before wandering off ahead of a wake of tracks very much, like the ones Tillman had found. Other mountaineers had also had food go missing in this neighborhood, and Woolridge, who was the first person to have passed through this valley since the autumn snows, was vaguely aware of such stories. Nevertheless, if there is anything that always happens to someone else, it is an encounter with a legendary animal, and after a quick smile at the Yeti idea, Woolridge forgot it. There are lots of interesting sights to be seen in these mountains, and the last thing you need to do up here, especially if you are alone, is to fantasize. Unlike most Westerners who come to the Himalayas, Woolridge was not a trekker, or a tourist, or a climber. He was there as a charity fundraiser. 
In ordinary life, he is a physicist who does research and development for the CEGB in Manchester, United Kingdom, and he has been on walking and climbing trips to the Alps and the Andes, but on this occasion he was on a 200-mile sponsored solo run for an organization called Tradecraft, which promotes trade, intermediate technology, and fair play and conditions in third world countries, including India. He was staying mainly in the 1,800-meter-high town of Joshamath, northeast of Delhi and not far from the Tibetan and Nepalese borders, and was ranging out from there in different directions through the high valleys over a day or two or three days. Each day he would set himself a goal and try to run to it in time to run back either to Joshamath or to another outlying base before nightfall. It was eleven o'clock on the morning of the fifth day out when he saw the footprints. He had run from Govingat, the village north of Joshamath, to a couple of empty bungalows known as Ganjaria, and was now trying to reach the closed end of the highest valley he'd gone through so far, about 4,000 meters. At 3,300 meters he saw the footprints, and was struck by their clarity, smiled at the idea of a yeti, and then wondered what really might have left them. I thought it was probably some sort of large langur monkey, because there were a lot of them about, lower down. Between Govindgat and Ganjaria, there were a lot of colonies of them, and I do remember reassuring myself that it didn't look like a big cat. Snow leopards are the only thing I had been told were in the area. But, of course, a person could spend a good part of his life actively searching for and never even glimpsing a snow leopard. Peter Mathiasen wrote a very good book, Snow Leopard, about his and George Schaller's Himalayan snow leopard expedition, during which, almost incidentally, they failed to get a single reliable sighting. To be afraid of an attack by a snow leopard, even granting that you could believe that such an animal would ever consider tangling with a man, would be impossible. If only because anybody who was ever killed by one would almost certainly go straight to paradise. A bear? I was under the impression that there weren't any bears around here. Anyway, there weren't any claws in the prints. He had also seen a wildlife notice earlier, the whole region is a national park, and it hadn't mentioned bears. In fact, there probably are bears in the area. Asian black bears are reckoned to range throughout the Himalayas, and brown bears are also occasionally reported but the footprints did not look like a bear's, and that was that. They did not have paw-like symmetry. He could tell that much, even though he did not stand around for a long time gazing at them. He considered a few more possibilities, but nothing seemed quite right. From a medium distance, he took a couple of pictures. I had a long way to go to get up to where I had to get back down that day, so... I didn't hang about too long. My main concern was with the instability of the snow, because it was so warm that day, and the surface was rapidly getting softer. I realized that the longer I left it, the harder work it was going to be. 
The next thing that happened, as he half ran, half plodded onward through the wet snow, was that a bird of prey with a six-foot wingspan came in very low and took a particular interest in him. Woolridge is not a naturalist and had no idea what kind of bird it was, although, having looked at a field guide since then, he thinks it might have been a griffin vulture. But what had begun as a fascinating close look at a large specimen of mountain avifauna gradually changed character as the bird continued to spiral down at him. I thought, does it think I'm injured or something? I was obviously going very slowly over the open slopes, and although I had an ice axe with me, I just couldn't afford to take the risk that it might harm me in some way. So finally I shouted at it, and fortunately it disappeared off to the other side of the hillside. If it seems odd that anyone, naturalist or not, could actually expect that a vulture would harm a human, they are big creatures, and so are we. And it takes an animal the size of a tiger to prey on us. Remember that Woolridge had also had a long thought about snow leopards, even though he knew how rare they are, and then remembered that he was all alone up here. Anything that happened to prevent him from returning on time to base, a broken bone, for example, could at the very least occasion an expensive search party, and that, at the very least, could prevent the whole reason for his Himalayan run. As for the most that could happen, that was just about anything that could be imagined. This was not unreasonable fear. It was an extremely mind-concentrating sort of responsibility. Then, a little further on, it was about noon by now, he heard a crash, and what he describes as a long rumbling. My first reaction was that an awful avalanche somewhere, and then I thought, no, it can't be, because nowhere around could I see any sign of any snow movement. Maybe I was trying to rationalize it to myself. I don't know. I put it down to soldiers in the valley dynamiting for roads. He pressed on up the slope, which seemed suddenly to get much steeper. It was also as the sun was shining on it, getting warmer and making Woolridge very nervous. And then, sure enough, stretching across his path was the sweep of debris of a freshly fallen avalanche. I think now, with hindsight, that this was the noise I heard. I went across the next fifty yards or so to get to another spot where the slope evened out so I could get a good view of it and try to work out where it started, what had started it, and what the risks were of something else happening. The thing that really caught my eye was this great big smooth slide in the snow, as if some pretty heavy rock had slid down it. But there was no rock. Where the rock should have been, or where signs that the rock had bounced away should have been, there was nothing, except tracks leading away right from the base of the snowslide across the slope behind a little shrub and beyond it. And right behind the shrub was a shape that couldn't have been a rock. In an unpublished written account of the incident, Woolridge describes this shape as a dark, hairy creature, perhaps up to two meters in height, standing erect on two legs. 
It had a squarish head and long, powerfully built torso. In talking about it, he also mentions knee-length arms with brown hair on them. Edward W. Cronin, in his book, Erun, The Natural History of the World's Deepest Valley, compiles all of the remarkably consistent recent eyewitness accounts of the Yeti into this description. Its body is stocky, ape-like in shape, with a distinctly human quality to it, in contrast to that of a bear. It stands five and a half to six feet tall and is covered with short, coarse hair, reddish-brown to black in color, sometimes with white patches on the chest. The hair is the longest on the shoulders. The face is hairless and rather flat. The jaw is robust. The teeth are quite large, though fangs are not present, and the mouth is wide. The shape of the head is conical, with a pointed crown. The arms are long, reaching almost to the knees. The shoulders are heavy and hunched. There is no tail. Except for the shape of the head, and it may only have looked flat because it was lowered as the animal peered down the slope, Woolridge's description is a good match for Cronin's composite something that Woolridge was unaware of before he took off for a run through the Himalayas. He had never thought much about yetis, one way or the other, and, if pressed, would probably have opted for skepticism. I remember how quickly I had to revise my own beliefs. I had to go from the point where I thought, well, a lot of people have been saying there are these strange footprints and there's got to be some explanation for them, the level at which I knew about these things, to thinking, well, the Yeti must exist because the creature can't be anything else that I know of. It's not a human being, and it's not like any other animal that I've ever heard of. What else can it be? It's a tremendous feeling that having all your doubts and your opinions so shaken into line... Unlike many people who see or claim to see unrecorded by science creatures, even unlike many people who have adventured to wherever they are for the specific purpose of finding and photographing them, Woolridge happened to have both a camera with him and the presence of mind to raise it and snap the shutter. The focus was right and the lens cap was off. In fact, it was a camera with an automatic focus and a lens cap shutter lock, something that ought to be attached by handcuff to every member of the International Society of Cryptozoology. The only problem was the Yeti was standing about 150 meters away on the other side of a non-negotiable avalanche slide. And one thing that Woolrich didn't have with him was a telephoto lens. He had 35 millimeter. The sun was behind the animal. When the film was eventually developed, the image was a silhouette about two meters high. I took a couple of quick photographs because I was certain that whatever it was wasn't going to hang around for very long. But it was still there. So I moved up and got as close as I safely could on the snow. I picked out a spot where some rocks were sticking out, and I was on reasonably solid ground and I started taking some more photographs. And the longer I was there, the more I felt convinced that the animal was in no hurry at all to move off. 
it was remarkably stationary. It showed virtually no sign of movement. So I studied it as far as I could and took the best photographs I could, mostly from this rocky area. Then I went back down again to where I had taken the first view and took some more from there. He took a roll of color film and loaded another. The animal remained still. The only sign of movement I saw was I saw the bush vibrate on one occasion, and when I moved lower down I got the impression, no more than that, that it changed its posture and was looking around the other side of the shrub. And you get that impression, too, from the negatives. Woolridge's eyes, there being two of them with fairly high resolution, were doing a better job than the camera. I could get the three-dimensional effect. He could see the brown arms clearly, and what was most clear, I think, were the features of the head, the fact that it was so square, for one thing. One other thing that still puzzles me is why it didn't seem to be looking directly at me. It was looking down the slope. I was convinced, the more I looked at it, that it thought its best chance. Well, I don't know how it thought it could have concealed. By instinct, maybe, in order to conceal itself, it freezes. On the other hand, maybe a snow-wise animal that has just been nearly killed in an avalanche knows how to keep another pile of snow from crashing down on it. Maybe it knows to go on to the nearest bush, hang on and stay still until the snow refreezes. Maybe it was wishing that the human over there wouldn't keep jumping around and taking pictures. Or maybe not. All speculations welcome. About 45 minutes passed. The sky began to darken and it started to snow. Woolridge admits that all things being equal, he might have considered trying the rather dangerous crossing of the avalanche debris and continuing for a little while with his run. He hadn't reached the day's goal. Hemkund at the valley's cul-de-sac. But that would have meant recrossing the debris later, and the snow would have been even more unstable, and it also would have meant and this was the factor that went furthest towards making all things unequal. Trotting nonchalantly past a yeti, an animal that in some of the stories can fell a yak with a single blow, all in all it seemed a good time to call it a day. On the way down he saw more tracks on the slopes below, but they were distant and inaccessible, and the light was getting worse. He took five or six photos that, when eventually developed, came out black. As he passed the footprints he had seen originally, he took some close-ups, but three hours had passed and the prints were no longer distinct. After administering the monster hunter's time-worn self-kick, he descended towards Gangjaria, the village of the Pulna, and finally Joshamath. At first he thought he would spill the beans down at Pulna and tell everybody what he had seen and then come back up the next day, maybe, and see what evidence there was. But he decided against that, partly because he was concerned about the animal. 
if the locals, and especially the soldiers down at Joshimath, decided to set off looking for it, well, you never know what they could have done. And secondly, the weather was turning bad. So he knew that by the next day the footprints would have been snowed over, and provided the animal hadn't been injured, it would have got well away over the call. So there wouldn't have been actually anything to see. He was pretty convinced of that. So I decided to keep the whole thing to myself, to go on and finish the run as if nothing had happened. It was very, very difficult for me because I was bursting to tell. But he kept his secret as he ran through the mountains for several more days, covered his 200 miles and raised 2,300 pounds for tradecraft, 1,300 over his goal. In fact, he more or less kept the secret for four more months. Of course, he had the film developed and took the pictures around to people who had seen or failed to see evidence of yetis, respectively. For example, John Hunt and Chris Bonington. He talked to Dr. Myra Shackley, archaeologist and longtime yeti enthusiast, and to Dr. Brian Bertram, curator of mammals at London Zoo. He talked to other zoologists, anthropologists, and mountaineers, all of whom, he says, seemed fascinated. But he didn't go public, as it were, until he appeared with Chris Bonington on BBC One's Wild Britain in July. Four months seemed plenty of time for the Yeti to have escaped its avalanche and to have returned to that untraceable place where all the Yetis live. But... Mightn't the news now still set off an expedition? I am very concerned that people should think carefully about whether it's really necessary. One of the natural reactions, I think, among scientists, is to say, to be positive about identifying what it is, and in order to find out what we need to do to protect it, we've got to capture one. But it seems to me that in this technological age, we've got such a lot of ways of studying with remote cameras and image intensifiers at night, that sort of thing. I'm not at all sure that it is necessary to capture the animal, particularly one like this, which seems to have been coexisting with man for thousands of years. We don't know how many there are. They certainly can't exist in large numbers, and maybe just taking one out of the population might be enough to destabilize it. He says that he is reporting his experience now, and that he had always intended to report it at some point, so that people take stories of footprints and of other sightings more seriously, and so that the Indian government, perhaps with the help of the World Wildlife Fund, might consider this enough evidence to give the animal protection. In his written account, he ends with a quote from Tillman's book, Mount Everest, 1938. When the dust of conflict had settled, the abominable snowman survived to pursue his evasive, mysterious, terrifying existence, as unruffled as the snow he treads, and unmoved as the mountains in which he dwells, uncaught, unspecified, but not without honor. Copyright from BBC Wildlife Magazine, September 1986 issue.
This is the end of the first story. Story number two. Field and Stream, January 2000. Print Pro says Bigfoot may exist. Eerily similar tracks are found miles and years apart. Police officer and forensic primate print expert Jimmy Chilcutt of Conroe, Texas, and Dr. Jeff Meldrum, an anatomy and anthropology professor at Idaho State University, share a passion. They examine the prints left by hands and feet to reveal the identity of unseen visitors. But while the testimony of fingerprint expert Chilcutt can prove a person guilty in a court of law, Meldrum's assertions that certain footprints constitute evidence of the legendary Bigfoot's existence raises eyebrows of scientist colleagues. Meldrum hopes some skeptics will change their minds after hearing what Chilcutt has to say about the footprint castings Meldrum has collected from the Pacific Northwest. The ridge detail, finger pattern, on the cast is neither man nor ape, says Chilcutt. Is it possible to have faked it? Sure, but the faker would have had to have an intimate knowledge of primate footprints, and that didn't exist at the time the castings were made. Chilcutt initiated the study of primate fingerprints in the mid-1990s, working on a hunch, the identifying ridge patterns, the articles, loops, and whorls, made by folds in the skin, would someday help forensic specialists catch criminals. He explains that it would be helpful if criminologists could identify the race of a person by his fingerprints. But research in that direction has been inconclusive, Chilcutt believes, because the races have interbred so much. Primates, however, have undiluted gene pools. To date, Chilcutt has more than 1,000 fingerprints of lemurs, monkeys, and apes in his computer databank. When he heard about Bigfoot castings in Meldrum's laboratory, he was intrigued, but skeptical. What I do is catch bad guys in Conroe, Texas, Chilcutt says. I didn't care one way or the other if Bigfoot existed. But a casting made near Walla Walla, Washington in 1984 piqued his interest. Not only did the ridge pattern run vertically along the edges of the foot, then angle across underneath the toes, a pattern different from humans and apes, which have ridges running horizontally and at an angle across the foot pad, respectively, but the imprints showed splits in the feet where the ridges did not realign perfectly when the skin had healed. Chilcutt got a second jolt when he found a Northern California casting made in 1967. The pattern was similar to that on the Walla Walla casting, although made from a smaller animal. For them to be fake, Chilcutt believes the same person would have had to fabricate both footprints 17 years and several hundred miles apart. That seemed unlikely to Chilcutt, especially after he tried to duplicate the casting and failed. The fingerprints expert has become a believer. I can assure you, he says, there's an animal up in the Pacific Northwest that we have never seen. Keith McCafferty, Copyright, Field and Stream Magazine. That's the end of story number two. Story number three. 
Mount St. Helens, Ape Cave. Ape Cave in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest went unnoticed for about 2,000 years. Then, in 1951, Larry Johnson of Amboy, Washington, was logging in the area when he discovered the entrance to the Lava Tube Cave, which was at the time almost completely blocked with vegetation and timber growth. Johnson then related the find to the Harry Reese family, and they investigated and explored what is now known as Ape Cave. Why is it called Ape Cave? Well, Harry Reese was a scoutmaster of a Boy Scout troop called the Apes, so named because of their interest in the legend of Mount St. Helens and its Native American tales of old Sasquatch. Thus, the cave they explored in those years was tagged Ape Cave after the scout troop of that day. Contrary to a published Bigfoot book, the 1924 Fred Beck story in Ape Canyon was not the motivation for the naming of the 1951 Ape Cave. The canyon story was on the other side of the Mammoth Mountain from Ape Cave. The scouts were influenced by the Native Americans and their campfire stories, which did not include Fred Beck, but rather focused on Native encounters with what they perceived as the mountain's hairy apes in the 1950s. There are no stories to support the notion that Sasquatches ever inhabited Ape Cave. The cave itself was formed 2,000 years ago. What is now a cave was once a stream bed. An eruption from the mountain's summit filled the gully with lava, which did not harden consistently. As the outward part of the flow cooled and hardened, the inner strand kept moving out the bottom of the cave. The lava flowed for three to six months, resulting in the cave as we know it today. At 12,810 feet, it is the longest such formation in North America. Walls average 30 feet thick. The forest grew up and over the main entrance until it was discovered by Lawrence Larry Johnson in 1951. In a roundabout way, it was indeed named after the legendary Sasquatch by way of a Boy Scout troop named the Apes. According to Native American legend, those apes were the elusive Sasquatch. This is the end of story number three. Story number four. Surgeon teams with filmmaker to find Almasty. Newspaper, the Long Beach Press-Telegram. Article titled, Big Hunt for Bigfoot's Kin. Published Sunday, March 29, 1992. Associated Press. A spirited 72-year-old doctor and a filmmaker are teaming up for a summer expedition to track the Almasty, or Snowman of the Caucasus, a huge, hairy beast with glowing red eyes, the hominid cousin of Yeti and Bigfoot. Dr. Jean-Marie Kaufman, a French-Russian surgeon, mountaineer, and scholar, has been on the Almasty Trail for more than two decades and has collected more than 500 accounts and a plaster-cast footprint of the forest man of the Caucasus. She traveled on horseback through the remote mountains between the Black and Caspian Seas, talking to villagers who had seen the mysterious beast. Although skeptical at first, she became convinced that the Almasty was another in an array of species that roamed the Caucasian wilds.
Retiring in France on a tiny Soviet pension, she never dreamed that one day she'd have the money to mount a full-scale scientific search. But then she had not counted on Sylvan Pallax. Pallax, a documentary filmmaker, was fascinated by two articles Kaufman wrote for Archaeologia magazine. Tracking her down, he proposed finding sponsors for an expedition that he would film. The respected French paleoanthropologist Yves Copens gave the search his blessing. Pallax raised half of the needed 1.8 million. He's confident he'll find the rest. For three weeks, the telephone has been ringing off the hook, said Pallax, whose previous works have included a documentary on a Harley-Davidson meet in South Dakota and one on Calvados moonshiners. People are fascinated by the almasty. A dozen people will leave Paris in June to be joined by a dozen of Kaufman's scientific colleagues from Moscow. They will conduct the research in the Kabardin-Balkar region of Russia, just north of Georgia. The expedition hopes to find the beast, put it to sleep, take blood and skin samples and a plaster cast of the face, and then let it awake in freedom after putting on a band so its wanderings can be followed. Appearing like a cross between an ape and a Neanderthal, the Almasty reputedly can run up to 37 miles an hour. It is said to be omnivorous and sometimes travels with companions and babies. The last sighting of the Almasty was by a zoologist friend of Kaufman, who reported spending six minutes watching one on August 25th, 1991. That's the end of story number four. Story number five. Argosy Magazine, April 1969. Wisconsin's Abominable Snowman by Ivan T. Sanderson, Science Editor. Argosy investigates a startling report of a dozen reliable witnesses and finds these remarkable tracks. My question was addressed to six of the men seated around the microphone and it was deliberately somewhat vague. It was, Gentlemen, before we get down to the facts, I want each of you who were on the hunt to tell me, one at a time, what you first thought this creature was when you spotted it. Richard and Pete Vanderberg, Bob Perry, Dick Blyer, Bill Mallow, and Dick Tillock took their time in answering, but all their answers were legitimate because they gave me their first impressions first and then their efforts at rationalizing. For three of those present, it was a second encounter, which I did not discover until later. These three are local men and were hunting in the same swamp known as the Deltox Marsh, in which they, in company with nine others, encountered the creature again on a deer drive on November 30th. All three spontaneously said that their first impression was one of complete incomprehension. They didn't know what it was. Bob Perry, who was up in a tree scanning the huge swamp with its stands of trees and meandering tongues of bushes and scrub, saw it first and had it under observation at the closest range and for the longest time. 
He said his second impression, when he had recovered from his initial surprise, was that it was a lone hunter dressed in a very silly way. Both Dick Blyer and Bill Mallow, having seen it from the ground, and much less clearly, due to the patches of bushes, could only give their rather long accounts of their first attempt at rationalization, and during this both thought it might be a bear, but, they added, they had immediately changed this to some crazy hunter, or more like an ape. By the time of the deer drive, six weeks later, these three had all come to the conclusion that it was not a bear, because of its very long legs and the speed and silence with which it moved, which our black bear cannot do when standing upright, nor a hunter. This puzzled me, especially because the other three present, who had seen it only once on the drive, all said that their first impression had been of a bear standing upright. But when it sort of danced around and then got in behind the bushes, as Dick Tellick put it, their second thoughts also were that it was a man. When it came to third and subsequent thoughts, all six reached the conclusion that it was neither bear nor man, and they debated the possibilities for us around the microphone. Finally, they came up with a combined notion, approved by all present, that it was some kind of a man that behaved like an ape, and more particularly like a chimpanzee. This, of course, prompted my next and most obvious question. You mean a man wearing a monkey suit, putting on a sort of act? There was a guffaw from everybody at the table, except my traveling companion, Dr. Bernard Huvelmans, of the Royal Institute of National Sciences of Belgium, who has spent a lifetime tracking down reported but as yet uncaught animals. Joining most heartily in this explosion was Larry McEvitt, a police officer and local game warden, who had actually supervised the drive. Accompanying this outburst were cries of, It would have been suicide! Somewhat taken aback, and asking what this was all about, I got the answer, You don't know the hunters who come up here in the deer season, and it's the truth. Anybody who dressed themselves up in a monkey suit and then danced around in the open in front of a line of even local hunters, giving his famous imitation of a dancing bear or a distraught escaped ape, could only be intent on suicide. Not even an escapee from a city on his first hunt would wear his wife's fur coat or a furry parka. Twelve men made a drive through this Deltox marsh, moving abreast at about twenty paces apart. The game warden was out to observe the start of the drive, just to check out the hunters and see that all was legal and in order, but he remained on one of the roads that surrounded the swamp. He did not see the creature, and he had gone elsewhere by the time the party came out at the other end of the swamp about three miles away. This swamp, some four by two miles in extent, is surrounded by farmlands dotted with numerous woods, thickets, and marshes, which are overgrown with three to four foot tall canary grass. There are two large spring-filled dew ponds, locally called fountains, in this swamp, one to the north, one to the near center. In addition to the six men already named, there were on the drive 
Kurt Kruger, Artie Tellock, Lester Zulheich, Don Scania, Romy Scanvi, and a visitor from Milwaukee. An interesting point is that their ages range from 12 to 55, and three of them have been in the armed forces. All saw the thing at the same time, though some closer than others, and some for a longer time. Oldown Savina and Artitelic got too dim a sight of it to comment. Shortly after entering the more open grass field center area of the swamp, the three on the left suddenly spotted something black standing in the grass, which reached only about halfway up its thighs. They didn't shoot. It was manlike. Confused, they called the line to a halt and passed the word along. The creature then began to walk to their left, Moving forward as quietly as possible, they wheeled around and got very close to it. The creature then began to retreat, but when they stopped, it stopped. And when they moved back, it came toward them. It finally moved into the thickets in the direction of some woodland to the northwest. They tried to follow, but the brush was too thick, so they circled around as fast as they could with a view to heading it off or to be waiting for it to emerge on the road beyond, on which, incidentally, they had left their cars. There they watched for a considerable time, but it did not appear. The composite description of the creature that emerged was that of a large and powerfully built man covered with short, very dark brown or black hair, and, as invariably in descriptions of these creatures, with a lighter and hairless face and hairless palms. The head appeared smallish, also with short hair, but the neck appeared to be enormous and so short as to be almost non-existent. The shoulders were very wide and large, and the torso barrel-shaped. In a six-way discussion at our interview, some time was spent on the proportionate length of the arms, body, and legs. Analyzing this exchange from the tape, it seems that while the body seemed to be very long, this was due to the absence of any noticeable waist. All of them said that it tapered from the shoulders right to the hips. As for a description of the legs, they could only guess since the creature was standing in grass, which they estimated to be between three and four feet tall. Some at first said the legs were short, others that they were long, but this was before they decided that they should speak of their length in proportion to the body rather than in comparison to a man or an ape. Then they all agreed that they would be of about average length for a tall man, since the grass did not reach to the crotch. But it was concerning the arms that all seemed agreed, feeling that they were exceptionally long for a man. I can vouch for these young men's honesty, their sincerity and exceptional intelligence, because we gave them a pretty thorough and skillful interrogation. Bernard Huvelmans was once nicknamed the Sherlock Holmes of zoology on his French TV science series. Trained zoologists can set some deadly traps for non-zoologists. This may be summarized. First, they agreed. It did not seem to be afraid and they felt sure it had seen them from the outset. Its movements were almost leisurely, and it seemed to deliberately come out from behind the bushes several times to observe them. 
Altogether, it impressed them, as it had done the three previously in October, as being distinctly curious and even inquisitive and rather bold in its approach to them, though duly cautious in that it retreated before them and kept at a safe distance. Of its body motions, they had much to say. It walked just like a man, but slightly forward and with a sort of swinging motion of the arms. On more than one occasion, it seemed deliberately to try to attract their attention by sort of jumping around. Now, all this, and a tremendous amount of further hints and details contained in our taped record, on analysis, adds up to but one thing. A hominid. This means something on the human branch of the general anthropoid tree rather than on that of the apes or pongids. In view of the fact that there never have been any wild apes in North America, and that they are very valuable specimens in zoos, circuses, and laboratories, that if one got away, it would be immediately reported, and also because it is very doubtful that any known ape could survive in Wisconsin into the fall. This leaves us with only two alternatives. Either it was a deranged person in a monkey suit attempting suicide, or it was one of the half-dozen or so kinds of man-creatures that we call collectively ABSMs, abominable snowmen. Finally, it came as a considerable surprise to us to learn during the interview I describe above that this particular specimen, or one just like it, was seen on no less than five occasions in that immediate area last fall. Sometime in the early fall, a Mr. Freeman encountered just the same thing in an area known as the Lebanon Swamp. Perry, Flyer, and Mallow ran into it on the 19th of November. There was this drive on the 30th of November, and the very next night, a Mr. and Mrs. Stan Pencala almost ran into it on one of the nearby roads. Then, as we were concluding our interview... Four young local men came in to say that some youngsters had just led them to two long trails of tracks in the fresh but slightly crusted snow, again adjacent to the Deltox Marsh. I'm afraid that this development seemed too pat. We went to see the tracks, and they displayed some very dubious features that would have been puzzling enough if they had been found on the top of the Himalayas. But... By this I mean they looked more than suspiciously man-made, in that they were enormous individually, but had exactly the same stride as my own. While both sets either appeared out of deep wood into which we had not the time or means at night to follow them back to their point of origin, or started from a blacktop road and cut across open fields to another thick wood. Also, on one occasion they stepped over a waist-high barbed wire fence without messing the snow or leaving any hairs. But perhaps we went to look at these tracks in too skeptical a mood, and our appraisal may have been prejudiced. Copyright, Argosy Magazine, Ivan Sanderson. Sanderson, Ivan Terrence, 1911-1973. Sanderson received degrees with honors in geology, zoology, and botany, 
and headed six expeditions in all parts of the world for such groups as the British Museum, Cambridge, and London Universities, the Linnaean Societies of London, and the Chicago Natural History Museum. He was the author of many books. One, Animal Treasures, was a Book of the Month selection in 1937. Others include The Hairy Primitives of Ancient Europe, 1967, Caribbean Treasure, Animals Nobody Knows, Living Treasure, Animal Tales, How to Know American Mammals, The Monkey Kingdom, and Living Mammals of the World. The Abominable Snowmen, Legend Come to Life, written in 1961, and countless articles for various publications and Argosy magazine, where he was science editor. This concludes the reading of the five stories. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.